Welcome back to our second part covering Jerome Cusson's top 100 movies of all time. Uh, he has been writing these little write-ups all year long, and we are now collating his thoughts in word form, spoken uh, about what he thinks about the movies. How are you doing this fine evening time, Jerome? Uh, I'm doing uh, pretty well. Uh, on the afternoon that we are recording this, it's, uh, it, is, it is early December, and winter, winter has come, Ben. I don't know. I feel like I've heard that somewhere before. Uh, we don't talk about that. Oh, we don't talk about that. It's, it's, been, it's, been, a, it's been a raised from the cultural zeitgeist. I mean, I feel like uh, the the D&D did an excellent job of making sure that nobody ever wants to go back and watch Game of Thrones, which is a really impressive feat. I, genuinely astounding. Like, no, even with things like Lost and like shows that have finales that are like mixed reception or like negative reception, I still like they get brought up, but Game of Thrones nuked its entire cultural cachet to the point where I'm like, is anyone going to read the next book? I think what's so fascinating about 2019 is you had these three major endings. You had Avengers Endgame, you had Rise of Skywalker, and you had Game of Thrones. And I feel like two out of those three just completely nuked themselves to the point where, are we ever going to go see a J.J. Abrams movie again? Are we ever going to watch a Benioff and Weiss show again? You know, I just feel like the Russo brothers... Like, last December, after all of this, they probably went, we really dodged a bullet there, didn't it? It's like, all their projects afterwards, I'm just like, yawn, I don't care about anything you seem to be invested in after well, Marvel. Th- their next movie is going to be really intense. It's uh, it's called Carrie with Tom Holland, and it's basically going to be about a, uh, a, a soldier who has returned uh, to the United States. So that... That should be interesting. Tom Holland is very clearly trying to go against the grain as Spider-Man. So that's that's exciting. But what's also exciting, Ben, is the list. And uh, we're going to talk about one of the greatest movie years of all time because there are three movies from that year on this list. Yes, there are. So we are starting our discussion this evening. 1976, Rocky, potentially the greatest sports movie of all time. It's definitely possible. It would definitely be considered in the running for one of the best sports films of all time. Like, I mean, I only watched it recently. So we did Creed on mine and Matt's podcast a little while ago. And I was like, right, I've never seen any of the Rocky movies. I need to do my due diligence and watch Rocky. And it's just good. It works. Like, I've also filled out some of my gaps in 1976 and the other movies that we're going to be covering today. And I'm like, Rocky's great, but you missed the ball in giving it best picture. Well, I think it was one of those situations where in the 1970s, cinema was so dark, and they were giving movies that were just dark, 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 dark. And I think this was a the the Academy probably felt this was an opportunity to give something that was actually hopeful, best pictures. So I think that's why it won. I certainly am not going to argue from a quality standpoint, even though these three movies are all on the list. I think there are two movies that are very clearly much better. But I think I think what works so much about Rocky is Sylvester Stallone really just puts everything into this movie as an actor and as a screenwriter. And Sylvester Stallone to me is one of those people. He is a walking contradiction in so many ways. If you read if you just read information about him, you're going to see someone who on the one hand will do Rocky, he'll do First Blood, he'll do Copland, he'll do Creed, and you'll get these very emotionally dense performances even if he's limited as an actor like you see what's on the screen but then on the other hand he's also going to do cobra he's going to he's going to ruin the rambo franchise to the point where he's just fighting mexican people in a very un-PC way he is he's a walking contradiction in so many ways but 
he's obviously one of the most important uh, people in the history of film. And just from where he started to where he was, I mean, I saw a, a commercial from the 70s that basically promoted the idea that he was going to be the next Al Pacino, and that tickles me to no end. I mean, again, that's an indelible mark on cinema, but also a man with no tone control or seemingly like aspersions to do consistently great work across his career. But it also, when needed to, he will he will do what you want him to. And like, you just look at like his 2010s, where it's like The Expendables and Rambo sequels, and and then the only one that really works is his or his Rocky side spin-off sequel things. But like, and what he did is like. So Ryan Coogler, I guess, pitched him the idea of Creed, like while while he Fruitvale Station hadn't even come out yet, so we would he wouldn't even know how good of a director he was, and yet he gave I mean he basically gave his blessing on it. So, I mean again he's a walking contradiction. I I really like the Rocky movie specifically because of the ending. I think the ending just works so well because it's not about him winning. Like what he says, like the big speech is, I want to go the distance. And once he's done that, like everything else is immaterial. And I, I have mixed feelings on the sequels at best in some cases, but in a world where this is the ending, I mean, it's just, it's a beautiful, beautiful ending. Oh yeah. Like absolutely fantastic. Uh, right. Let's, let's progress onwards a little bit. So from 49 to 46, you've got Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, the best Harry Potter. 48, almost famous. 47, the Princess Bride and 46, Heat. I think it's really hard to talk about Harry Potter now. And it's funny. I wrote my thing about problematic for JK Rowling before she really exploded and put out some tweets. I mean, I think at this point, I think J.K. Rowling has has really kind of destroyed any credibility that she has, and she's going to have a really hard time. And I think Warner Brothers is going to have a really hard time uh, continuing on with this franchise. And that is regardless of what you think of the Grindelwald movies, which I think are are bad. The second one was very bad. And I just don't know what the future of the franchise is, but I, I think it's also going to be really hard. Like, do I want like in a world where we have kids, like, do I want my kids reading Harry Potter, knowing what I know about Rowling? And I wonder if a lot of other uh, people are going to feel very similarly, because I think these movies and, and, and books have become retroactively pretty problematic. And I think with the movies, it's a little bit different because I think you at least have you have a director who is kind of interpreting things. You have screenwriters. You have actors who are kind of bringing their own sensibilities to it. So with the in the case of the movies, I think you at least have other voices. And I think when I was watching the Harry Potter movies and starting to watch them, the first two are kids' movies, and they're fine. But I never walked away from those movies thinking, okay, this is going to be like an eight movie franchise that's going to work and it's going to make all this money and I'm going to want to go to the theater and see it. But you watch Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. This feels not just like a real movie, but it basically has this, the sheen of prestige that is added to it. And Alfonso Cuaron is, is a master in his own ways. And what he was able to do on this movie, he was able to not only elevate this franchise from just being kind of a kid's franchise to something that could be enjoyed by teenagers and adults. Uh, But I also think that he created the model that I think all the subsequent directors basically tried to copy. And 
were kind of met with mixed results. I think some of the movies mostly work, but I think this one specifically works because Koran distilled the book down to its essence. And I don't think it's any secret that I don't think it's a coincidence that this is one of the shorter movies and it's also one of the best ones. Yeah, I mean, this is when it feels like Steve Cloves is given a little bit of like breathing room in comparison to the other ones. Like, this is when the books get slightly longer. This is when you start having to make those cuts. I think he's a lot more able to cut because this is that kind of like midway point in the franchise where like it's not setting up future stuff it's just a standalone story and so you can cut some of the extraneous fat from it but you're not being held back by christopher columbus doing like fine work on the first two movies but they're very much children's movies and so you get to do prison of Man is very much that middle point in the series where like it's not quite gone full like YA in some ways and it's more less of a kid's book but like it, it manages to hit that balance and then also having such a great visual director who takes that darkness and kind of like makes it part of the the fabric of the movie just really really helps and like and it's a shame to watch this franchise be taken away from people who like know film language and be given to a woman who demands final cut on like all her scripts who's who's only written two screenplays in her life yeah i mean it's just it's it's terrible and i don't think it's any secret as to why the grindelwald movies just haven't worked and i think you're going to see an increasing amount of um diminishing returns because i just don't think that whatever this franchise was can no longer be and I think just like when George Lucas sold off to Disney, I think you have to find a way to separate the creator from from this franchise. I don't know how they're going to do it because I think they're so inextricably linked at this point. But I think that's the only way that this can move forward and whatever they want to do, whether it's a sequel movie, whether they want to redo the movies. I mean, I just get the impression that HBO Max is a real hard on for the potential of redoing this as a seven season streaming series intrigued to see what someone could do i get yeah i don't think jk rowling's ever gonna leave this stuff behind it's a very weird situation like, i'm still surprised that warner brothers haven't come out and said like they're not doing five movies anymore i'm surprised they haven't said it's three and done but obviously she still holds enough sway to convince them to do another one of these movies i really hope that the next project they announce that's got the Wisting world branding is like a new creative person who is able to do something with the franchise without her overlooking their shoulder the entire time. Yeah, I mean, because even a lot of the actors have kind of kind of broken away from this situation as well and kind of distanced themselves. But not Eddie Redmayne. Not Eddie Redmayne. Well, he did Danish Girl. He can't really talk out without getting a little bit of hate. Ugh. All right, let's move, let's move on. Almost Famous, a movie that Matt and I covered on Will Be Movies. I like this movie just fine. I, but like... Just bits of it annoy me in terms of the way it talks about music and thinks about music kind of irk me. So is this is one of those situations where I am not a music person, and when I say I'm not a music person, my cultural knowledge of music is about as basic as you can possibly get. Like, I know who some people are, but, like, I couldn't, like, sing a song or whatever. So that may be why I, I can ignore that because I just don't have the cultural awareness. So it kind of washes over me. And I think that's one of the reasons that I love this movie so much. And it's funny that there are two heavily, like two movies that are heavily engaged with music that are on this, uh, the top 50. There's this and another one that we're going to talk about later. But I mean, Almost Famous is also kind of a journalism movie. I have a very intense bias for those. I really like just about all the performances I mean, Frances McDormand is great. 
a shocker. Zoe Dachanel is great as the older sister. I almost wish we could get a movie about her, like Billy Crudup and Jason Lee. This is probably the best Jason Lee movie that isn't a Kevin Smith movie. And I mean, Philip Seymour Hoffman is in like three scenes, and I feel like he has like the most important scene when he talks to Patrick Fugit about not being cool. I think that is, for me, that is an iconic scene that is that is so important when it comes to being a journalist and when it comes to covering these people. I, I really would like to see this movie if Patrick Fugit wasn't in it and if they cast somebody else in the lead, just to see if it would be any better because I think his performance is very uneven and doesn't work at times. Yeah, like this for me is the ultimate idea of like, I love all the stuff before he leaves home. I, I love Francis McDormand and I love Zoe Deschanel in this movie. Like they're, they're absolutely fantastic. But then after that, it just becomes kind of like scenes that I really, really enjoy. It's like, I love... Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance. I love the scene where they do Tiny Dancer. It becomes those kind of things rather than like a cohesive whole of a movie. But obviously, like, there's a nostalgia, and definitely, like, this is Cameron Crowe before he gets bad. Like, he has that, like, hot 90s, and then pretty much as soon as he's done with Almost Famous, it's like you can write off the rest of his career after that point. He had a Showtime series in the last decade, if you could believe it. I, I, I know people who watched all of it. How? How did they do that? Why would they do that? No idea. But those are the same people that lost saw Lucy in the sky as well. I didn't. I. <laughs> you will not shame me for going to see Lucy in the sky. I had to do it for for the culture. For for the culture. The culture. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, yeah, almost famous. I really uh, also. In 2000, I would have bought all the Kate Hudson stock you had, and I would have lost a lot of money because she really did not have a great career in that. And that's kind of unfortunate. Like, I'm not going to say that everything she's done is bad, but she did a lot of really bad romantic comedies in that time period. I feel like that was the era of Hollywood mis like mis figuring out where people fit in and go, oh, you're just a, a rom com star if you're attractive and charismatic, which she uh, she definitely was, and. Now we can talk about a movie that is uh, very much the opposite of Almost Famous. So this is Princess Bride. Um, the thing that I, I or, or, whenever I talk about Princess Bride, the thing I need to discuss is just, does any director have a better streak than Rob Reiner? You know, it's funny you ask that because another podcast that I listened to actually was discussing this. Like, if you look at his 80s and 90s, it's a hell of a run. You're talking about, like, this is Spinal Tap. The Princess Bride, A Few Good Men, When Harry Met Sally, like this is an incredible run. And it's not like he's doing one genre either. It's not like Christopher Nolan's movies are kind of the same genre in every way. They are the Christopher Nolan genre. Rob Reiner's making comedies, dramas. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that I don't know if this has to do with the fact that he was an actor before he was a director but he just had a knack for picking really good scripts, really good stories, and just directing them in such a way that honors those scripts, because that's the strength of The Princess Bride, is it is probably one of the best scripts that's ever been written, and it's because it was written by William Goldman, who every screenwriter should thank their lucky stars that William Goldman was became such a star and became such an important factor, because, I mean, he's really the person that I think elevated the idea of the screenwriter as opposed to from going going from just being a work for hire to being someone who this is a very strong personality and William Goldman was a very strong personality. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like uh, just 
one of the tons of screenwriting. I, how many Academy Awards has he won or been nominated for? Or... I mean, he's been nominated for a ton. I mean, he's got a, he's got a number of scripts just on this list. And the wild thing is that he was a screenwriter. He was never a director. He always just stuck to screenwriting. And there are times when I will see like certain people. Charlie Kaufman, Aaron Sorkin, like they're great screenwriters, but then I watch their directing efforts and I'm like, you know, this isn't bad, but I would almost rather you just be writing the script. See, I mean, I, I obviously I've got mixed feelings on like some of those works and stuff like that, but I do think it really does take like a great director to elevate some of those scripts to levels that they get to. And I think, I think Kaufman is, is better able to like put his ideas on paper, whereas Aaron Sorkin gets stuck in the kind of like self-aggrandizing. But I mean, but Sorkin's also another one who has his script elevated by Rob Reiner at the end of the day. Yeah, and I think that the, the, just the mechanics of this movie, it probably shouldn't work. And the fact that it does, I think, is is kind of a miracle. I don't know. The, it, I, I'm trying to think of like a, a comparison for Rob Reiner. And John Favreau is honestly the only person that comes to mind. But even John Favreau, he never directed something like A Few Good Men. I mean, he basically directed a couple of, like, bro comedies and then kind of went into a lot of more genre-heavy things and never really did that, so... Ron Howard, maybe? I mean, to an extent, but I, I almost consider Howard and Reiner to be of the same generation. Mm, fair enough. It, but, like, Ron Howard's another one of those guys who, like, has a, some really, really good movies in his lineup, but then also has done some, like, interminable bullshit. And like like Rob Reiner, <laughs> Rob Reiner for the last twenty years has not directed a movie that anyone knows is ex- exists. I like the Bucket List is his best and highest grossing movie of the last twenty years. But uh, what a performance in Wolf of Wall Street! That's oh. probably the best thing in the twenty tens. <laughs> but yeah, just just amazing that he has this streak and then just like loses it so badly to the point where like you just have to like cut off his career at a certain point and yet for so for so long he is just the king of this kind of thing and like i mean princess bride is i feel like one of the most quotable movies of all time obviously thanks to william goldman but just so many so many iconic performances from pretty much everyone to the point where like fred savage is still seen as just the grandson from the framing narrative i mean the fact that he was in deadpool the the pg-13 kind and they kind of used it that device i mean that that says a lot uh right 1995's heat talk about this three-hour movie that matt waters i don't know his feelings on it heat is fantastic it is an action epic again this is the kind of movie that probably would get turned into a miniseries and i don't think it should be a miniseries i love this as a three-hour movie it is basically Robert De Niro and Al Pacino, not quite in the twilight, not quite in their prime, kind of an in-between period, but it's very shortly after this that I think both men's careers kind of go, start to go downhill a little bit. And I think you even see a, some signs of that with Pacino here, as he is really dialed up. It's fascinating. If you watch Al Pacino in The Godfather, The Godfather 2, and then The Godfather 3, those are three completely different performances and then Heat is almost something completely different from those three movies. So Pacino basically just goes big starting it around this time. And I don't know if that has to do with a lot of his kind of more theatrical performances, because I know he was doing a lot of stage work in New York for a few years. But, I mean, Pacino's on a heater in this one. And, I mean, there are a lot of quotable lines that are probably not appropriate for this podcast. But I uh, I really like Pacino and... It's funny. I think Robert De Niro gets kind of pigeonholed as the gangster 
And yes, he is a criminal in this movie, but here, because Pacino is going so big, De Niro is kind of going the opposite way, and he's not as big as he typically is, and he's much more quiet. What a what a solid group of supporting characters. You've got Tom Sizemore, who has to who of course has to die. You've got Val Kilmer, the same year Batman comes out, he's in this, and I think he's so much better in a supporting role as opposed to the lead role. And you've got Ashley Judd, you've got McClady Williamson, you've got Natalie Portman in kind of a the the angsty fail daughter role. And I mean she's really good in this movie. And you can see why why she became a star. And I will point out, it's kind of a weird thing, but there are two movies on this list where Natalie Portman is bleeding in a bathtub. Spoilers. Spoilers for both Black Swan and Heat. Uh so have you seen the the TV pilot this is based on, or have you just seen Heat? I have seen Heat, and I have seen a lot of the other movies that have tried to be Heat, including my including Michael Mann's Miami Vice, which is kind of trying to be Heat. But you haven't seen his LA Takedown. I have not. Yeah, like the the, the TV pilot that like if you watch it, it's so weird to watch it, and you go, like, oh, this is Heat, but like on a TV budget and with less charismatic actors, and you realize just how much is elevated by Pacino and De Niro and, and Kilmer being being in this thing. Um, I mean, the thing that I've heard about Pacino is that he started taking scripts that he thought were like a C or a D level script and thinking like, maybe I can make this a B or an A, and then just like failing <laughs> at every opportunity. And like, it, I'm, I'm hoping that stuff like The Irishman is him turning a corner and deciding to, or like, the one-two punch of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and the Irishman is him going like, I'm going to start doing good scripts from good directors again, but we'll see. Well, then you watch his Amazon series and you realize that's probably not true. <sighs> I forgot he did that. Jordan Peele's involved <laughs> in that, though. He uh, he certainly is, and he probably shouldn't be, but that's that's for another podcast. Right. Five more movies. Number 45, The Incredibles. Number 44, Aladdin. Number 43, Citizen Kane. Number 42, Million Dollar Baby. And number 41, Fruitvale Station. I watched two movies on this list for this, or this in this five for this very podcast. So we'll get to those. But first, Incredibles. Uh, a perfect movie? I don't know if it's perfect at this point. I don't know. The sequel is kind of kind of drags it down almost for me in a, in a way because just I don't think it was followed up as well as it could have but I think this is definitely the a, the Pixar movie that really made me into a fan of not just kind of the movies but of the brand itself because I think I had fallen off a little bit I hadn't seen A Bug's Life or Monsters Inc and I've since gone back and watched them and really enjoyed them but I think it's basically ever since the Incredibles, ever since I saw the Incredibles, I think I have seen every single Pixar movie with the exception of like two in theaters opening weekend. And this, this is the best fantastic movie that has ever been made. Probably will ever be made unless there was some miracle. They just get Brad Bird to do it. I don't know if I want 2020 Brad Bird directing anything, honestly. Uh, I mean, I'd, I'd be excited for whatever he does next. He's still a director that I've got a lot of faith in, even if... I mean, I've liked all his movies from the 2010s. I don't think he's I, done a bad movie this decade. I, if, if he's going to go and do an old-fashioned movie, I really would like him... Superman is the movie that I would be most interested to see Brad Bird tackle, if I'm being honest, because I think his sensibilities would probably match up best 
with Superman. I think Superman needs kind of an old-fashioned storyteller instead of Zack Snyder. So that's actually what I would like to see him do. I mean, it's funny that we say that considering he has done a rip-off Superman movie and a rip-off Fantastic Four movie. I mean, yeah, I, he certainly has. So let's let him do the real thing. And yeah, I mean, what's funny is on the rewatch, let me tell you, Syndrome has, depending on your perspective, either aged really well or aged really poorly. But that is a, that is a great vocal performance by Jason Lee. And uh, I think it deserves a lot of credit. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, him and Samuel L. Jackson, I think, are the two best. Well, no, Holly Hunter's, like, probably one of the, like, top five animated vocal performances ever. But, like, Jason Lee and Samuel L. Jackson both absolutely bring it as well. And then you've got Sarah Vowell, who writes weird books. Have you ever read a Sarah Vowell book? I've never read a Sarah Vowell book. It, uh, she, she definitely goes into some strange territory. Interesting. Like, she visits the places where some people have been assassinated in one of them. Okay. It's not. It's, it is absolutely not what you would expect from for Violet uh, from The Incredibles. But I believe Brad Bird listened to episodes of This American Life on NPR in the states, and I believe that's how she got cast. Oh, huh, interesting. Uh, and I, again, I do. I, I do want to give a shout out. Michael Giacchino's score to The Incredibles is also uh, incredible. Michael Giacchino is very good at scores in general. I think his I think his Spider-Man scores have been really excellent too. Uh, right, so Aladdin. This is like the one Disney Renaissance movie that I never had on VHS, so like I don't have the nostalgia for. Like for, for whatever reason I've got like Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and then I skipped to Lion King. So is it what's the reason for that? I, I genuinely don't know. A lot of those were gifts. I don't know whether or not my parents just didn't get it or they didn't think I'd be interested in it, but like for whatever reason, I don't have that, like, inbuilt nostalgia for, like... I feel like those first four Disney Renaissance movies are, like, seen as, like, the high point. Obviously, then you've got, like, the mixed bag of, like, Pocahontas and Hutchback and Notre Dame and all the rest of it. But, like, those first four kind of unimpeachable masterpieces of animation that everyone holds up as being, like, all-timers. And Aladdin is the only one that I've got, like, a... Eh. Not my... Not, not one I had from my childhood. That's 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 really strange to me because I, unless I'm Mandela affecting myself, I recall seeing this in theaters when I was like seven years old. And this was this was a very important movie for me for a lot of the reasons that you just stated. It's part of the Disney Renaissance. It is just it's really hilarious. The love story is good. It is, of course, problematic in, I think the 2019 version at least tried to rectify some of that and then created additional problems. But I think Aladdin for a lot of reasons, just it, it works. It just is. It's just the great songs, great story. And yeah, I mean, what else can you say about Robin Williams that, that hasn't been said a million times because, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that he, he is not with us anymore and it's sad that we did not get kind of like this great late renaissance of robin williams performances either on a streaming tv show or a movie because you know i feel like that's something that that definitely could have happened i think if he had finally gotten the right script i think it could have happened but i think for a lot of people i think this is their most this is their most important and iconic robin williams performance too see i mean that's another thing i've got lots of nostalgia for robin williams in the 90s like i had mrs doubtfire and a lot of his other like transition into children's movies and whatnot but aladdin is just the one that i missed although 
obviously this is like if if I if I say that Holly Hunter is one of the best animated voice vocal performances ever, like Robin Williams is probably number one. Like, like I don't think there is a vocal performance that has so fully influenced the animation style of a character more so than Robin Williams has with Aladdin. And I think for better and for I think it's for better and for worse because I think. The, Hollywood has taken the message of putting stars in these roles instead of voice actors too, which is unfortunate. But I mean, that's the whole thing. Is like they got. They, it wasn't just that this person was a star. This is someone that could modulate their voice. Could have been a voice actor if he wasn't uh, as gifted as he was. And and yeah, obviously after that, like they start to get all these kind of things. Like and obviously, like he's done vocal performances since, or he did vocal performances in between Aladdin movies, like robots and stuff like that, that are just like not very good, but. Do you realize that he had done an animation performance that came out around the same time as Aladdin? Yeah, he he's in uh, Fern Gully, and that's the reason why he requested to be not in the in the promotion because he had signed to be like billed and promoted as being in Fern Gully, haven't he? Yep, that is certainly the case. Now, now Fern Gully is best known as Avatar, I believe. <laughs> I had to make that joke. It's just it's it's a layup. It is a layup. Uh, do you have any jokes about Citizen Kane? The Simpsons have already made all the Citizen Kane jokes, and I am not better than the first eight seasons of The Simpsons, so I'm not even going to try. I think Citizen Kane has been talked about as one of the greatest movies of all time, and I still think that when you watch this movie, it is still so unique. It is unlike a movie that was made during this time period. It is unlike a movie that was made in 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 current times. And I cannot believe that this movie exists in the fashion that it does. And I also cannot believe that Orson Welles really never followed it up with something nearly as good. And yeah, that's really all I could say about it. I mean, it's, it's, it's so ubiquitous at this point that to even talk about it in any context is just really difficult to do because, I mean, Roger Ebert has literally done a commentary for it. He's literally talked about this movie frame by frame. I think you're being mean to Touch of Evil <laughs> in terms of, like, Orson Welles movies. I mean, I think Touch of Evil is very good, but I don't think it, like, even touches Citizen Kane. I mean, and... sure. I mean, Citizen Kane is, like, epoch-defining. There is so much about it that is, like... Like, even watching it for the first time and going, like, oh, God, this is so influential like you can see it in just how it's shot and how it looks um and obviously nothing it doesn't feel like anything's done it as well since but like it feels like it's mixing and matching so many different tones the non-linearity the focusing on on different characters and then their interpretations of him and just like it's a fascinating screenplay fascinating performances like the fact that Orson Welles is, is playing the lead in it as well yeah like it, it's absolutely tremendous and like the fact that I can come into it watching it in 2020 and going this isn't ruined by the Simpsons if, if anything the Simpsons has made this a more enjoyable experience for me is is kind of astounding I would totally agree with that and I think the other thing that really sticks out about just this movie is the the style of it it just it almost feels like Orson Welles went into a time machine 30, 40, 50 years in the future and kind of saw the mockumentary style, went back and kind of did something. I mean, it's not a mockumentary. It's definitely taken more seriously. But the idea of making a fake documentary in the 40s, like, this is just on a completely different level from any movie that you would watch from this time period. And that's that's why it's on the list. And one of the greatest movies ever made, no doubt. Yeah, I mean, I did have a moment watching it for the first time and going like, is 
is the entire movie going to be this like newsreel footage of his life? Is that what we're setting up here? Is this is going to be like talking heads and this is going to be so far removed from it? And obviously it isn't that, but like there was a moment where I was like, this is, this could be something absolutely insane in terms of like when it came out. But, and I am very excited to see David Fincher literally recreate all aspects of Citizen Kane in Mank. I mean, he's going to try to do it too. Yeah, I'm excited. I've heard good things, but also some people who are like not quite on the David Fincher hype train, like being like, eh, it's fine. Well, I'm on the train with you, Ben. So no worries. Uh, speaking of directors you can get on a train for, Clint Eastwood, what are your, what are your feelings on, on old Clint? I really like Clint Eastwood when he's not talking to a chair. Boy, it's really hard to talk about Clint Eastwood at this point in, in 2020, given uh, his behavior and things that, that have come out come out about him. Um, so I'm just going to focus on Million Dollar Baby as a movie. And I think that the reason that this movie is so great is the performances, Clint Eastwood included, Hilary Swank, who has won two Academy Awards. I want everyone to go, seriously, everyone, go look at Hilary Swank's IMDb. Understand she has won two Oscars, and that has basically done nothing else. Now, she's certainly done movies that are okay, but she has never even approached the work that she has done in these Academy Award-winning performances. And I will include the next Karate Kid as, as part of that. And any episode of, I don't know, was she on 90210 or Melrose Place? Whichever one she was on never has come close. But She was on 90210. Uh, she, is, she is really good. I... It's funny that there are a lot of boxing movies on this list because as a sport, I don't like watching boxing and I am generally not a fan of UFC either, but there is just something about boxing that is incredibly cinematic and it just works. And what I think makes this movie different from even the other boxing movies is that the the, the huge twist uh, that happens about you know two thirds of the way and uh, that leads to an appearance by... Uh, character actress uh, Margot Martindale. Speaking of character actress Margot Martindale, I, I think you're being very mean to Hilary Swank's incredible performance as Joey Pogo on BoJack Horseman. How could I forget? I'm, I'm so glad that we were able to circle back to BoJack Horseman, though. <laughs> but yeah, have, you like, seen, have you seen Million Dollar Baby? I've not seen Million Dollar Baby. Like, all I know is obviously, like, where the last, like, 30 minutes to an hour of the movie goes, where, like, the boxing's over and it's just like, let's be sad. I mean, but the way they do it, there are all these shots of the stool, and Clint Eastwood does such a great job of emphasizing the stool throughout. And it's it's so unclear to me where this was going. And then the moment when her head, like, it snaps and you hear the snap. I mean, there were gasps in the theater. I remember seeing this. And there were definitely gasps, and people were just... This literally came out of nowhere. And I think there are certain movies where there's a twist and it kind of ruins the movie. But I think in this case, not that somebody uh, choosing to commit suicide is a good thing, but I just think the way that the, the way where this movie goes is so different from any other boxing movie that I've ever seen. And part of the uniqueness comes from the fact that, I mean, it's really entertaining and it's, it's almost a comedy at times and then it just becomes something else. And I think both parts of it work uh, very well. And you've got a very young Anthony Mackie as a, uh, as a cocky young boxer in this movie. Right. Let's get to one of the contentious picks we're going to talk about. Fruitvale Station. You love this. This is a bad Ben Phillips movie opinion. (sighs) See, 
I think the performances are good. I think Ryan Coogler does a terrific job of directing. But when I watched it, all I could think was, all you are trying to do is get an emotion, an emotional rise out of me for this thing that I know is bad and is absolutely terrible. And I don't think you're saying anything else beyond the fact that this is bad and shouldn't have happened. And I think that's like the movie having all these like happenstance moments and like he's just traveling around LA and you can see the bar in the background and he picks up a dog off the ground and is like obviously a good person and throwing his weed into the ocean because he's planning on giving up and like trying to get his job back and just all these different things. And it feels like, look, he's a good person. He's a good person. He's a good person. And all of it just felt so manipulative to get to the point where like, we're going to spend half an hour watching him slowly die whilst we like focus on the emotions of his family. See, and you're either on this movie's wavelength or, or you're not. And the, the read that I was getting is that, you know, he is not a perfect person. He is trying. And I think we do see him continuing to fail though. I don't think, I think he's trying, but I don't think he is in a position to, he's going to be totally successful ever. But even though he's not going to be successful, what, what happens to him ultimately is still a tragedy. I think that what they should not have done is they should not have shown the real footage at the beginning. I think that was that's something that I definitely think does hurt the movie. But I think it's what's also unfortunate is that you know this movie illuminates an issue that still very much exists in this country, and the person Oscar Grant is just one of dozens, if not hundreds, of names that you could recite of people who have been murdered by the police for no good reason other than the police have guns. And I think that that is kind of where this movie really shines is in those last 30 minutes. And the reason that this is so high on the list is because of that, because of the, just the tragedy that, that surrounds this movie. And I mean, you also get a really good Michael B. Jordan performance. I think, um, Michael B. Jordan has is a mixed bag at times, but if he's in a Ryan Coogler movie, you know you're going to get the best out of him. And I think this is this is one of his best, even to this day. And I think that's the other thing that people forget. I mean, he was almost a baby in the first season of The Wire, and then he did Friday Night Lights, and he's he's just had a, a pretty fantastic movie career where he's already been in the MCU, and he's already he's already been the Human Torch. We probably shouldn't talk about that, but. Like, he's just had such a wide variety of film roles and worked with a wide variety of directors. I mean, it's it's pretty wild. But I think uh, Ryan Coogler is almost the, the Michael B. Jordan whisperer. Yeah, I'm going to be sad if he doesn't have an appearance in Black Panther 2. And, like, I'm not going to be sad that go like, oh, he should replace Chadwick Boseman or anything like that. But, like, they feel like they have such a, like, a symbiotic relationship in terms of their movies that him not being in Black Panther 2 is going to feel weird in, in Kugler's oeuvre. I would agree with that. The next five, we've got two five-star movies, in my opinion, in this set. Uh, number 14, Moonlight. Number 39, Toy Story 3. Number 38, Toy Story 2. Number 37, Toy Story. I, I'm sensing a theme. And number 36, The Martian. So to, the reason that I did not put 2015 on the list of, um, of years that I was going to put at the bottom is because there is no possible way that I could justify putting the 2015 movies that I do that low on the list. And we'll get to The Martian in a second. But it almost also felt insulting to Moonlight as well to put it in, like, the low 
Knees when I know damn well that that is a movie that is that is among my 40 favorite of all time. I remember this is the movie I walked out of it thinking it was the best movie of 2016. I still think that it is the best movie of 2016. Regardless of the circumstances uh, and the controversy and the situation surrounding what happened at that year's Academy Awards, I still, I just, I can't believe that it won Best Picture. And that I agreed that it should have won Best Picture, because that almost never happens. I'm so happy that this movie won Best Picture, and I'm happy that this movie is so important. And I think a lot of the people that, a lot of the complaints that people have about the movie Boyhood, I think Moonlight is kind of a version of that story told from a completely different perspective. Moonlight is great. Absolutely terrific. I rewatched it because uh, we were covering it, Bill, so we could talk for the movie movies, and I was just like, no, this is a, a five-star movie. Like, uh, me giving it a nine is just me, like, having a bad experience in the cinema. And, like, I discussed that on my on our Beale Street episode where I'm like, I watched it in not ideal circumstances. And revisiting it now, I was like, no, this is just absolutely tremendous. Like, I'm probably... I'm just trying to think, like, when was the last time an Oscar win feels this deserved? Like, is it the best, best picture winner since, like, Schindler's List? I would really have to go back and look... I mean, like, there's good See? movies. Like, I'm saying, like, that, like, there's Return of the King. There's No Country for Old Men. But like, really, like, the No Country for Old Men year, it's kind of like you could go, do a toss up between that and There Will Be Blood. And obviously, Return of the King is far more of a like achievement across three movies win rather than like the actual merits of Return of the King as a standalone picture. Although I will say, if you look at the other movies that Return of the King was competing against, you could see why it won all those Oscars. Because what do you mean? What do you mean? Sea Biscuit of- is a masterpiece. Uh, 2003 was not a great year, so that was definitely the year to give all the awards to Lord of the Rings, but Moonlight is definitely up there as one of the best, best picture winners of all time. And I would say Parasite, I I would say that they've gotten it right, too, on the last four years, which for the Oscars is a very good hit rate to give Moonlight and Parasite these two completely different movies from almost anything else that we've seen uh, uh, in the past. I think it's, I think it's great that yeah. these two movies have won Best Picture, especially even more so The Parasite, because I, I think that Moonlight is so much more of an American experience, and not to say that we should not give international movies Best Picture, but I think this is the kind of story that, that we need to see win more Oscars and get more publicity, because the issue issues of sexuality are not discussed enough anyway, but they're especially not discussed in the black community. And no. I think yeah. it's great to see this. Yeah, I, I do have a, a funny story where I used to work uh, retail selling DVDs and Blu-rays and whatnot, and we had uh, a, a go, like, I don't want anything from Hollywood, I only like foreign cinema, blah, 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 like, and, that was, and she was like, she would see absolutely everything, and there was like no foreign movie that would come out that she had not seen. And so eventually I'm just like, right, Moonlight, I know you don't like Hollywood movies, but Moonlight is absolutely tremendous and just flat out refused to see it because it was made by Americans. And it was just one of the most frustrating conversations I've ever had in my life with someone like, cause so often it's the opposite way around where like people will refuse to watch movies made in, made it with subtitles and all the rest of it. And then watching this person go, no, 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 I'm not watching it because it won best picture. Therefore immediately it's bad. Yeah. I mean, I can almost see the logic there. If she also refused to see Green Book, I would at least appreciate the consistency. <laughs> I think I wasn't working in the store uh, when Green Book came out, so I do not know what her opinion what was. If she, what if she decided, I'm going to do it, I'm going to finally watch a Best Picture winner, and she decided to watch Green Book? <laughs> God. 
you will definitely never see another one again. <laughs> the Oscars trick me every so often into like the Shape of Water year. Shape of Water is not my favorite movie of that Oscar season, but like the fact that it was running against three billboards, I'm like, yeah, no, Shape of Water, like, fine, good, <laughs> good winner. It could have been a lot worse. That's how. That is exactly how I felt too. I was like, you know, I'm not totally sold on Shape of Water, but please don't let it be billboards for the love of God. Just give me anything else. Right, Toy Story trilogy. Uh, Jerome, why do you have a trash opinion and think Toy Story Two is the weakest of the trilogy? Why? Why do I think Toy Story Two is? I, it, Toy Story Two is literally thirty-eight on the list. I know, but you said it's the weakest, whereas Toy Story Two is the best Toy Story movie. I mean, I think Toy Story Two arguably has the best scene in any of the three Toy Stories, and I think you know what I'm referring to, of course, uh, the Jesse song, as I like to call it. And I mean, I think that Pixar—that feels like the first time Pixar. Pixar was able to break people emotionally and it's something that they've gotten real good at in subsequent movies and this was kind of like their first time like in Toy Story 1 they almost tried to do it with Buzz and it didn't quite work but this time they they pretty much nailed it they uh they threw in some Sarah McLaughlin you bring in Jesse I mean that scene is is pretty heartbreaking but I, 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 I think it's the weakest of the three, but I mean, like to say that it's the weakest of the three when it's still one of my favorite movies of all time seems absurd to talk about. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm more teasing more than anything, but Toy Story 2 is the one that I think is head and shoulders above the other two. Like I will frequently just bring up the scene with the, uh, the, the renovator fixing Woody uh, just as like a, a relaxing thing because it's just such a, a gorgeously rendered scene of cinema. So what um, Ben is saying is that he likes competence porn, is what he's really saying. I mean, doesn't everyone like competence porn? Um, yeah, well, I mean, like, these, this trilogy is, like, so goddamn good, and it's weird to be calling a trilogy considering Toy Story 4 exists, and it's so pretty damn good. Like, obviously, I think it's not the height of the franchise, but, like, to- Toy Story is possibly the most consistent Hollywood franchise ever. I would agree, and it's funny. I think the best Act 1 is Toy Story 1, the best Act 2 is Toy Story 2, and the best Act 3 is Toy Story 3. So it's just funny how that works out. I don't know. I The the, the Act 3 of Toy Story 2 is kind of what where it loses me a little bit. Um, so that's why I, I think it's the weakest of the three. But, I mean, again, that's we're, we're arguing semantics at this point. I think the world building that gets done in the first one, probably some of the best world building that you're ever going to see. And given that this was Pixar's very first full-length feature film, I think makes it all the more impressive that Toy turned out as well as it did, and it still feels like a perfect movie at 81 minutes. And... Some of the human animation, I will admit, is kind of on the janky side. But for the most part, I would say Toy Story, the first one, the animation still mostly holds up 25 years later. And I was very concerned that it wouldn't. Obviously, they have been able to go in so many other directions and put so much more detail. Even by the time you get to Toy Story 3, I think you see just how far they've come. But, I mean, Toy Story is still... A damn good movie, and I think Toy Story 3... The trick of Toy Story 3 is that they they try to get you to believe that they're going to get incinerated. And even though there's no way that a kid's movie would do that, the fact that they almost get you to believe it, I think is what makes Toy Story 3 so special, is the fact that they have built these characters up to the point where you are invested in what happens. And it's not just that 
there's that threat of incineration, but the way it pays off with the claw, bringing that joke back from the first movie and the second movie, and then this, the sequence where Bonnie and Andy play with the toys. I mean, you could not ask for a more perfect ending to a movie and a trilogy than Toy Story 3. No. Uh, do you want to know my hottest take about Toy Story 2? What is your hottest take about Toy Story 2? I think Joan Cusack should be nominated for an Academy Award for her performance as Jessie. I mean, I did give her best performance. I'm not sure if it's Academy Award worthy, but I think Joan Cusack at times can be very animated, very theatrical in her performances, and sometimes it doesn't work. But when you're able to channel it in a movie like this, this is where it works out much better. Yeah, I just think we quite often do voice actors dirty. And obviously I've already mentioned two of my favorite voice acting performances ever, but like we really should have more room for like voice acting performances at things like the Academy Awards and Joan Cusack is like one of those ones that I probably would uh, put in the field there but yeah that yeah. is my hottest Toy Story take uh, The Martian so I read this book before I saw the movie and I had a great time and I'm not going to say that the movie is like a complete disservice to the book that it's based on but like it definitely for me just feels like a, this is just good fun rather than like all time number 36 on like a, a film list I mean, this is my favorite Ridley Scott movie of all time. I really love Matt Damon in this movie. This is the first of four 2015 movies that are on the list. There's still three more to come. And I just, I, I think it's great fun. I, I appreciate the fact that Matt Damon has to science the shit out of everything. I, I, I maybe, maybe my perspective would be different if I read the book before this instead of after, like I did. But... I just, I don't know, man. Like, this movie just worked. I saw it in a great a great movie theater to see it. And I think this is just, this is something that works. And it's it's also something that I will find myself re-watching all the time. It's, it's on one of the channels here in the States, and it's on all the time. And I find myself very frequently stopping to watch it. It's got a, it's got a great cast, just up and down the line. I mean, you've got, you've got Donald Glover almost in a nothing role channeling whatever energy he has into this. You've got Jeff Daniels in a suit, which is where he belongs. You've got Sean Bean not dying. You've got Jessica Chastain in space. She actually gets to go to space this time. You're continuing the Saving Matt Damon theme. And you've got Mackenzie Davis, who... Mackenzie Davis is great. She is, although the, obviously the racial implications of the character that she's playing are problematic. Yes, I... I would definitely, and that that is more much more illuminated in the book than I would say even the movie. Do you feel comfortable with it being nominated for best comedy slash musical at the Golden Globes? <laughs> I don't feel comfortable about the Golden Globes, so that's that's kind of where I'm at. They are as illegitimate as of an award show as you could possibly get, and award shows in general are kind of silly. I will say, here's what I will agree with in this case: I do believe that. Movies should be categorized into different genres as opposed to saying these are the 10 best movies. I would much rather have, like, even if it's just comedy and drama and you keep it as basic as that and have two best picture winners. And I'm not saying that everybody deserves a participation trophy, but I would just like to see more movies get rewarded and finally maybe get the comedy some love too. 
Yeah, I mean, this is, is this is not a comedy. <laughs> yeah, that is the big disservice of a lot of these wartime movies is that comedies do kind of get left. Right, so let's move on. Number thirty-five, Shawshank Redemption. Number thirty-four, Lost in Translation. Number thirty-three, Psycho. Number thirty-two, Goodfellas. And number thirty-one, The Social Network. Uh, Shawshank Redemption, the like everyone's dad's favorite movie. I saw this movie in a religion class when I was sixteen years old. I have no idea why we were watching it at that point, but I remember being pretty blown away by it, even when I was 16 years old. And it's really easy to say that it is a dad movie because it, it kind of is, but it. what if I were to tell you that Roger Deakins is the one that shot this movie? I mean, I'm aware of Roger Deakins shooting this movie. This is an absolutely gorgeous movie. I mean, the way that he shoots the prison, I can't. I cannot imagine anyone else shooting the prison better than Roger Deakins. And you've got Morgan Freeman as a narrator. You've got Tim Robbins, probably in his best performance in a movie that did not do great in 1994, but is almost universally regarded as the better of the of the two movies compared to Forrest Gump. I think it's much more debatable between this and Pulp Fiction. We'll talk more about that later. But, I mean, Shawshank Redemption, like... I can't imagine being a voter or a film fan in 1994 and going to see Forrest Gump instead of Shawshank. I mean, that's that's a pretty bad beat. And I say this as somebody who was nine years old and did see Forrest Gump instead of Shawshank, but at least I had an excuse. I mean, it has to be the whole boomer generation thing. Like, it is just, for a certain age of person, it is so much nostalgia in Forrest Gump and so much the idea that, like, look, we made it through. Whereas Shawshank Redemption, yes, there is hope, but it is just not in the Academy's wheelhouse to, like, reward this kind of thing, even though, like, I mean, so many iconic things about this movie. An all-time performance from Morgan Freeman, who, he doesn't win supporting actor, does he? He does not. He nominated, I feel like. He was nominated, but he lost to uh, Martin Landau for Ed Wood. Right. I mean, Martin Landau's fantastic in Edward. So, like, but, yeah, it does, it does feel like they have to give him, like, makeup Oscars for stuff like uh, the previously mentioned uh, Million Dollar Baby later on for, like, this disservice to his performance in this. Well, and the thing about it is, like, this movie, I, I don't know if this is the first movie he narrated, but this, like, invented a genre and invented a meme of Morgan Freeman narrating things, too. And eventually culminates in playing God. Who else to play God? And he was uh, he was basically a godlike figure in the Lego movie, too. Yeah, he, that he was. But speaking of 2003 movies, Lost in Translation. You know, it's funny. I remember when I went to Japan and I actually had a chance to cross the, the same street uh, that Bill Murray does at one point, the Shibuya, which is basically the biggest... Uh, the biggest... the busiest street in the world, uh, as it's been said. And, I mean... Just being traveling abroad, I think, has given me <clears throat> a new perspective on this movie, for better and for worse, because there really is something to this idea of you are in this very different place, and there is a there is definitely that sense of loneliness that exists, and just the idea of finding another American and kind of attaching yourself uh, to them is definitely a thing. I what I really appreciate about this movie is the way that they treat the relationship between Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson, because it could have gone in a lot more creepy directions, but I think what Sofia Coppola is able to do is, uh, is really magical. 
And uh, Giovanni Ribisi and Anna Faris tremendously entertaining in their supporting roles in this movie. And Bill Murray's wife, poor poor Bill Murray's wife on the phone, just comes off like the worst person in the world. But I mean, it's <laughs> even though you don't actually see her, I feel like she's doing some pretty good some pretty good phone work. This is um, this is probably one of my favorite Bill Murray performances. He definitely should have won the Oscar for Lost in Translation. I firmly believe that, even though he's kind of playing an extension of himself. But he's playing himself in such a way that I think is really uh, both endearing, selfish. I think he, Sofia Coppola has done probably the best job of capturing the Bill Murray persona in the movies that she's done most better than almost anyone else. Yeah, I mean, watching this movie later, I probably should have. Like, all the performances are so damn incredible. Like, Bill Murray's great. Scarlett Johansson's great. Like, it's it's almost perfect for that reason. It's just the amount of jokes at the expense of the Japanese accent, just kind of really great, really great <laughs> at a certain point. No, it's, it's really annoying and it's really, it's very problematic. And if, if, if this is based on her own experiences in Japan, the fact that she would write it this way is bizarre to me. Yeah. I mean, like there is a way to do this where like you are lost culturally and the movie does manage to, to betray that like lack of cut, like the cultural disconnect, like in really interesting ways. And then there's like three successive scenes of just literal lost in translation, which are just about Japanese people having difficulty with L's and R's or differentiating well, between well, L's and R's. The other thing is, is that, you know, if I'm if I, when I'm in these countries and I'm not able to speak their language, I'm the one that feels like an idiot. And I'm like, I'm the butt of the joke, not the person that I'm talking to because I'm in their country. So I I almost, I wish the movie had been able to better reflect that idea that. Bill Murray's actually the one who should feel like an idiot because he doesn't understand, not the people that he's communicating with whose country he's in. Yeah. It's, it's like the big black mark on this movie. And obviously, like, a lot of the discourse at the time and still to this day is about that kind of stuff. But, like, it is undeniable that Bill Murray probably should have won Best Actor for it over Sean Penn. And, like, just, I mean, just so many things. Like, I mean, this is what sets up Sofia Coppola as, like, a great director as well. Yeah, for sure. And I'm not sure if she's done anything as good since, but it's it's certainly... It's good that she has this on her mark so that the thing we don't remember her most for is The Godfather 3. Right, Psycho, another one of those movies that is, like, an indelible part of culture. Uh, for sure. And uh, very problematic now uh, with the issues of transphobia uh, being what they are. And I think that a lot of people have in recent years kind of talked more even more about that um so that's that's an unfortunate mark on this movie but i think just from an execution standpoint uh this is probably one of the best directed movies on this list and it's no secret uh alfred hitchcock is the person behind it one of the one of the few auteurs of his time and it's worth pointing out that he made this movie in 1960 he was making movies in the 30s so this is like this is not even like prime Alfred Hitchcock. He's an older man at this point, and he's still churning out a classic like this. And not only that, but he's making a black and white movie in 1960 as well. And uh, that that is also very notable. This movie, it just works. Like there really isn't anything else to say about it. I think I think the actor, the performances are fine, but what makes this movie work is Hitchcock, and to an extent, uh, I think Anthony Perkins is also is also very good. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's fun. I live. Uh, like the next townish over from where Hitchcock was born, 
there's a cinema like near where I live that like proudly proclaims that like Hitchcock used to come see films at that cinema and stuff like that. It doesn't, it doesn't, isn't a functioning cinema anymore, but like it's still got the signage outside and they're very proud of like the Hitchcock uh, pedigree to like this area and stuff like that. Like all time great. And so many, so many fantastic movies that like, I mean, you could have filled this list with like five or six Hitchcock movies if you really wanted to. Oh yeah. I definitely, I definitely could have done that very easily. Movies like North by Northwest and um, there's uh, Rope, The Man Who Knew Too Much, Vertigo. These are movies that definitely uh, could have been on the list as well. Uh, and then an- another director who's come up on this list before. Good one. Well, uh, have we done another? Yeah, well, uh, a director who's come up on this list before, uh, Martin Scorsese with Goodfellas. Yes, uh, Martin Scorsese. This is my favorite Martin Scorsese movie uh, that has ever been made. Probably will ever be made at this point. I think... This is kind of the prime of his career, and I think that this is the peak of it. Uh, it is a travesty to me that Goodfellas did not win Best Picture in 1990. What is not a travesty is Joe Pesci did deserve an Oscar uh, for his turn as Tommy in this movie because, the, <laughs> I mean, maybe maybe even within the context of understanding that he basically, Goodfellas and Home Alone came out within weeks of each other, and Joe Pesci was in both and is incredible in both. Um, it's probably why he deserved the Oscar more than anything. But you've got Ray Liotta becoming a star. You've got Robert De Niro kind of in a more supporting role. But you've also got a bunch of Sopranos actors <laughs> in Much Younger. Uh, they are much younger. But, you know, I think there are some people who have almost gotten annoyed by the idea of Martin Scorsese doing a gangster movie. And he has not made as many gangster movies as you think. And I would argue that Goodfellas is the best of the bunch and is a must view. It should be seen by everyone. I think its use of, I think the way that it uses different songs, they are, it's funny. If you watch Goodfellas after watching like other movies, you're almost going to think, well, he's using, he's using these very cliched songs. He is the man who kind of invented the idea of using the Layla guitar rift at the end of Goodfellas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, can we talk about the most important scene in this movie? Which is? Uh, poorly chopping garlic with the, the razor blade. Uh, that is, the thing that I love about Francis Ford Coppola and Martin Scorsese is uh, they will always have cooking scenes in their movies, and it will make me really hungry. This was no exception. Yeah, just a, a wonderful, wonderful scene, and who doesn't love a bit of garlic? Uh, and then Social Network, my, my favorite movie of the 2010s. Uh, obviously, you've got more movies above it on your list, but like for me, this is like just a perfect movie that is so much richer and deeper than it even was 10 years ago. This is a movie that I am a firm believer is great because of the studio restriction that it had to be two hours. If there was no studio restriction, I think this movie is two and a half hours and I think it's not, is not nearly as good. And I don't think it might not even be on this list. I think the fact that it's two hours and they literally have to start the movie before the credits roll I think speaks volumes about this movie. Aaron Sorkin is a very problematic writer. I think David Fincher does a great job of kind of distilling what works about Sorkin's dialogue incredibly well. I love the fact that Rooney Mara basically becomes a star and she's in like 10 minutes of the movie. I love Jesse Eisenberg's performance. I love Andrew Garfield's performance. This is just a movie that hums and works along so well. And 
Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm basically in agreement with you. Even though this is not the best movie of the 2010s in my view, I would certainly, if I were to make a list of the best movies of the 2010s, this would probably be in the top five or ten. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, I mean, I've spoken at length about it. I just absolutely adore this movie. It's it's sort of mental to me that like after like it does feel kind of indebted to Zodiac in in some ways. Which is obviously like three hours, but like an incredibly methodical and so much slower than this one does. But it feels like there's a DNA between the two of them. But the fact that he's got Benjamin Button in between those two movies feels just weird. It is very weird. And I don't like Benjamin Button. I think you do, don't you? I do like Benjamin Button. Benjamin Button feels to me like a successful version of what Forrest Gump's trying to be. And I don't know, like, man. It's, it's, it's the same same writer. Like It feels like Eric Roth just went like, I could do, I could do it again. Yeah, I just cannot get into Benjamin Button. That is a movie that I've tried to watch a couple times, even since then, and just cannot get into it. It just it feels completely different from the wavelength that David Fincher usually directs at, and it doesn't work. Yeah, and then and then obviously he does he does those two, and then he does like pulp airport thriller books for two movies. <laughs> he certainly does. Oh, David Fincher, really good director. I I do prefer him in the slightly more like serious mode, I guess, or like even like biopic mode. Yeah, I think he's that's that's the only reason that I'm excited for Mank because if you just tell me what Mank is about, I'm like eh. But you tell me David Fincher's directing it, and I'm like, all right, I'll give it a shot. Yeah, especially with a script by his dad of all people. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. That is uh, that is another notable thing. Uh, okay, so the next five movies on the list. Number 30, Inside Out. Number 29, Boyhood. Number 28, Hot Fuzz. Number 27, Jurassic Park. And number 26, Back to the Future. So Inside Out is definitively my favorite Pixar movie. That is that is my hot take. Because if you look at all the Pixar... So I've talked about six Pixar movies on this list. I think they are almost unapproachable at this point as far as quality i think inside out is the best pixar movie and it is my favorite pixar movie because i think what it is able to do with the characterization and what it just what it is able to do consistently for its entire running time is something that i've seen almost no other movie it doesn't really have an antagonist it has characters everybody develops in some way it's really funny it's got a great emotional gut punch I, I love Inside Out. It's my favorite Pixar movie. It's not my favorite, but it is in like my top ten, and the top ten is like kind of unimpeachable classics. I mean, your my favorite isn't even on this list because my favorite is Wall-E, which is a movie I'll go to bat for like any day of the week. But like Inside Out is just tremendous. Like uh, Phyllis Smith is just an all-time great vocal performance as well in this movie. Yeah, it just it just really hums. Yeah, Phyllis Smith probably doesn't... I think Phyllis Smith is mostly remembered for The Office. I think she is much better here. I think she she gets an arc here. She never really got that on The Office. Yeah. And and obviously, like you have to talk about Bing Bong. <laughs> like, I mean, that's when I say the emotional gut punch. I mean, that character should not work. That concept should not work. And the fact that you're in tears when he fades away, man, that's... That's great cinema right there. Is that the number one gut punch? I know most people do Up as like the number one emotional gut punch to a Pixar movie. It's between this and Up. And I think Jesse Jesse's song is probably in there as well. But, oh, I mean, Coco has a really good one too. God damn it, Pixar making people cry. 
I mean, they're really good at it. They are, <laughs> like, they are really good at it. To a ridiculous degree that, they, they're, that they've been doing it for 20, almost over 20 years at this point. And yet, Onward was, like, not very good. I've heard good things about Soul, so I'm really hoping that Soul is a return to form after a couple of years kind of, like, in the wilderness doing sequels and stuff. I am so excited for Soul. I've heard such good things about it. I think Onward was fine. But it definitely was not. It did not feel like a Pixar. It felt like a Disney movie, not a Pixar movie. Yes. Uh, so, Boyhood, a movie which, judging by the record times, I think is my second longest episode that I've discussed on anything this pod- uh, podcast network this year. Uh, so, so Matt <laughs> Water, Matt Waters did not like this movie, and it, it and it, I understand why. I just. Like, it'd be, it would be one thing if this was an experiment that didn't work, like it ended up being a total disaster. But I, I really love that Richard Linklater just had the discipline to, to do this movie over 12 years, was able to come up with a cohesive story and make what I believe is the best movie of 2014. I think I think this should have won Best Picture. He should have won Best Director. I think that this is very much a director's movie because I don't think the performances across the board are great. I think they're serviceable. I think they're fine. But I think the reason that this movie works is just the way that Linklater uh, directs and edits the movie. And I think that's why at two hours and 40 minutes, that's why I never feel like this movie's running too long. I can breeze through this movie very easily, despite the fact that it's almost three hours long. And the thing that I love so much about what what Link later said when I was reading about this, uh, when it first came out, is he brought up this idea of capturing the moments after the important moments, like not covering graduation, but covering the graduation party. And that's something that has really stuck with me because Linklater is somebody who talks about time and memories so much. And I think he really captures something. Is it a universal experience? It 100% is not. But I think since Boyhood has come out, we've had Inside Out, we've had Moonlight that I think have that have captured other aspects of this experience. And I think that that follow-up has has made me much more accepting of Boyhood since then. And even even if those movies did not exist, I would still really love Boyhood. But I'm glad that we are getting these kinds of experiences reflected in movies. No, absolutely. Like, I love Boyhood. Again, a tremendous masterpiece. Like, the fact it works is incredible. Uh, yeah, just good all round just good all-around fun um just if we could just delete that scene in the restaurant where the waiter thanks her Ooh, that scene even when i was in the theater i was like "Ooh, this is bad this is very bad <laughs> and it, again it feels like one of the ones like i know that the start of it feels like it's getting somewhere but like you could trim that quite easily oh yeah that i wouldn't even trim it for time just because it's so it's so blah it's the white savior thing, and that that really grosses me out. Yeah, you can very easily cut both scenes with with that particular character, and whilst you're at it, get rid of the like teen sex talk in the abandoned house scene. Speaking of teen sex talk, we can talk about hot fuzz for the greater good. For the greater good. So I know that this is this is a hot debate between you two about what your favorite Cornetto movie is, and for me, it's maybe it's because I am much much more into kind of the the genre 
that Hot Fuzz is doing. Like, I'm much more into kind of action-y movies than I am horror. But I, um, like, obviously, both of these movies are on my list, so I love them both. I just love that Simon Pegg is just a completely different character than the one in Shaun of the Dead. And I'm glad that he really got to show his range. Nick Frost kind of playing the same character, but I love that he gets to be a little bit more emotional in this movie. And then you've got uh, kind of a who's who of great British actors. You've got Timothy Dalton. I mean, I, I don't think we touched on it when we did Shaun the Dead, but I know we were kind of angling on doing like a joint episode for the two of them because it is such a coin flip. But the fact that you've got Olivia Colman as like 14th <laughs> on the call sheet just incredible like just a just a fucking incredible movie this is yeah i mean it's just you've got martin freeman in like a nothing role too it's just it's wild british actors are so much more flexible than american actors because they'll do like nothing roles and then they'll be the star i mean olivia coleman was in the second season of fleabag the same year she won an academy award for the favorite I mean, I mean, that's not even getting into like. I, I, sh- I assume you've not seen it, but that Mitchell and Webb look was a sketch comedy show uh, in the UK, and she plays a character. I don't think she says a word in some of the, like the most famous sketches that she's in, but she's in like every single episode of that show. Just, I mean, her career is astronomical and inc- insane. But like, yeah, I mean, I, g- I guess the help in the UK is that like it's quite small, and so anyone can get anywhere within a couple of hours. So like, you can do these kind of things quite easily. <laughs> Whereas, like, in America... That is, that is tremendously amusing to me, that that's... Geography is why everybody can be in everything. I mean, I'm just imagining doing this kind of thing in the US. Like, could you imagine going to someone and going, like, we are going to do a story of rural America. You need to be here every single day, but you're going to have three lines worth of dialogue. No. I mean, that just wouldn't happen. It just flat out would not happen. Yeah, and I think I think that's the core difference is that like, and also like, there's a really tight knit comedy community, and Edgar Wright had been working for so long in that community, like from directing, spaced, uh, and doing like some other TV shows around that time. Then Shaun the Dead was just this absolutely huge word of mouth buzz hit that like in the three years just became bigger and bigger and bigger. I mean, like you you watch it when like you get the US commentaries on spaced, and you see the guest people that they have on on the commentaries in the US edition of Spaced, and it's just like, he has become nerd royalty just from, like, one movie. And then the fact that he continued after that with, like, Hot Fuzz, Scott Pilgrim, World's End, Baby Driver, like... I mean, we don't have to talk about World's End. I like World's End. I mean, I... I'm kind of meh on it. I think I think the issue with World's End is that I think it nails the emotional storyline in a way that Scott... Uh, in the way that Hot Fuzz and Shaun Dead don't quite as well, but it doesn't have the specificity of like the parody or the homage. Yeah, although we do get another James Bond, so that's a good thing. Can you imagine if he had somehow gotten Sean Connery out of retirement? What a legend! I mean, if Sean Connery wasn't going to come back for Skyfall, he wasn't going to come back for anything. That is uh, that is very true. I just love the idea that he he decided not to do Lord of the Rings or The Matrix, but decided League of the Extraordinary Gentlemen was the was the movie for him. He said to himself that any script that confused him after dropping those two was gonna he was gonna pick up. So <laughs> should have gone with his instincts. Should have just stayed retired. Oh uh, right, Jurassic Park. Is this your highest rated Spielberg, or do you have another Spielberg high? This is uh, this is my this is my favorite Steven Spielberg movie, and. I mean, I saw this movie when I was eight, and it's probably 
it would definitely be my, one of my favorite movies of all time since 1993. I mean, like, what the hell do you say about it? It's it's Steven Spielberg literally at the peak of his powers because the same year he does this movie, he also has Schindler's List, which he wins all the Academy Awards for. So 1993 is basically the year that Steven Spielberg became like an all-time Hall of Fame legend. And the fact that he transitions from this into founding a movie studio, like he finally wins his his Oscar director uh, for uh, Schindler's List. He wins Best Picture. He takes some time off and then founds a movie studio where he just goes like, and now I'm just going to make whatever I want for the rest of my career. <laughs> and now, I'm, because that's, because he was always the big budget blockbuster director before this. And then after this, I mean, he had all the power that he could have wanted. And even if this movie, even if Schindler's List doesn't win Best Picture, he's still got Jurassic Park that makes all the money in the world. And I mean, it's, it's just, it's a remarkable piece. And I think Jurassic Park has only aged better in my head because every single sequel has just been bad. Even when he did The Lost World, which is okay, I just think none of the sequels... It is bizarre that he's got these two mega franchises. And obviously, like, the Jaws franchise is not his baby in the same way that Indiana Jones or, or Jurassic Park are. But, like, he is still producing and scoping for directors on Jurassic Park movies and like like we are going to get a new Indiana Jones movie that's going to start filming in like yeah, six months. at some point we're going to get a new Indiana Jones movie and it's not going to be by Steven Spielberg um, and it's going to be weird. Absolutely. I mean like obviously Spielberg like I think he is not at his strongest now when he's making these blockbusters like it feels like that time is behind him but like he's still like an all-time great and this is as you say like the, the peak of his powers like the one-two punch of like what he does best of like the populism and just the impeccable craft in schindler's list and all the rest of it like just i mean there's a reason why he is the the, pe- the director that most people learn first if they're learning about directors yeah and i think that the other thing about spielberg is i know that there's there are, there are a lot of critiques out there about his 20th century output but or 21st century output, but like even Minority Report and War of the Worlds, I mean, these are still movies that are not as good as Jurassic Park, but I mean, they're still really excellent. Munich would certainly be up there. Lincoln. I mean, I would put, I mean, like I think Tintin is super good. Oh yeah. I, I absolutely adore Tintin. I think that like, to, like if you're starting from Second Private Ryan and you go through like the post, he's only got like three missteps in that time it's like the terminal isn't great kingdom of the crystal skull isn't great and that's like about it in terms of ready like, player one is oh, an abomination after, after the post right sorry uh i just i really hate that movie so much sure i mean i think it's better than the book but like the book is also an abomination and the sequel is apparently even worse <sighs> i enjoyed the day that we got of everyone dunking on it before we started doing copyright claims oh my god i mean you know, you follow some literary people on Twitter and they were just posting these awful excerpts. Just the worst. Right. Uh, let's talk about another director who is also in the Spielberg camp who fell off a cliff a lot harder, a lot faster than Spielberg did. Zemeckis with Back to the Future. Yeah, I mean, Back to the Future, again, probably one of the best scripts that's ever been done. A movie that was executive produced by Spielberg. I, I, it's, it's even hard for me It's sometimes 
to process just how big of a star Michael J. Fox was. But in 1985, he is in this movie, which is one of the biggest movies of the year. He is also on one of the biggest television shows of the year. And that's that's wild to me that basically he was on a show that was being watched by 30 million people a week. And just in this movie. And yeah, it's... I think what works about Back to the Future is they, they really get the nostalgia right. There's a really good balance of comedy, of drama. And again, I think what Zemeckis does best is the family movie, a genre that has disappeared. This is a great family movie because it's I think it's got something for, for every age group. And it's also got the DeLorean, which the DeLorean is even if you if you read about the DeLorean's history, that is might be one of the most interesting things about the movie. What, that the DeLorean now is like a complete lemon of a car that has had its complete public image changed by this movie. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, I, there's so much about this movie that like it could have gone off the rails. The fact that like they almost put it out with Eric Stoltz in the lead role. I like Eric Stoltz well enough, but he's too dark for Marty. He's too dark for Marty. Like the fact that like they almost couldn't get Michael J. Fox to film it because he was so tied into um what was the show he was on? Uh, Family Ties. He was so tied into Family Ties that like they just couldn't pull him out of that until like they managed to come back after filming had started and he wanted to do it. Just so much about this movie feels like it could have failed and instead they make like one of the all-time great blockbusters. Yeah, and like I don't even know if Zemeckis like I'm really glad that Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis have a firm handle on this franchise and until they're passed, I don't think you're ever going to see a Back to the Future 4. But I mean, if they try to make a Back to the Future 4 or reboot this, it's not going to be the same and it's not going to work because Stranger Things has kind of gone into the territory and other movies and other shows that have gone back to the 80s. We've gone back to the 80s so much that a movie like this just wouldn't have the same effect. It feels bizarre to think that if you did it now, it would go to the 90s, though. That is true. I, yeah, now I feel really old. I feel even older than I did a minute ago. I mean, I mean, that is the, the pitch to it would have been you do a reboot in 2015 or whatever, and you go back to 1985. Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely. You have, that's, that's absolutely what you do. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not going to happen anytime soon. Bob Gale, like, obviously, like, Zemeckis is still a director, but Bob Gale feels like he does everything to do with a franchise at this point. So, like, yeah. it's, it's not going to happen. Yes, and that's a good thing. Next five movies. Batman Begins at number 25. Number 24, Do the Right Thing. Number 23, Bubbling for Columbine. Number 22, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And number 21, Creed. So Batman Begins, I think a lot of people love and talk about The Dark Knight. I think Batman Begins is one of the best origin movies that has ever been made. It is incredibly unfortunate to me that every subsequent franchise has tried to do the same thing and it just has not worked. Batman Begins... The process of him becoming Batman works, the way that they talk about the costumes and like ordering different, you know, capes and, and materials and whatnot. I mean, those scenes just work. And the way that they introduce Batman, you cannot introduce a superhero better than Batman Begins because the way that he, I mean, the way that the movie just becomes a horror movie for like five minutes. You're never going to get an origin story as good as, the, as this one. And I think any movie that has tried to kind of do this, even TV shows have kind of tried to do this, hasn't worked. And I think the fact that this movie came at a time when Batman was basically thought of as a cartoon and you had the Schumacher movies, I think this was a, a necessary reset of the franchise and kind of going back to the story 
this story I think works out. I think what Christopher Nolan often gets accused of is this idea of dark and gritty. When you watch these movies, I don't think they're as dark and gritty as people make them out to be. What I think they are more so is I think they're more grounded and realistic than the Batman movies. But I don't think they're as dark as people make them out to be. No, he has a levity. It's just he's quite cold in terms of how he does things, which isn't dark. It's just like there is just a a calculated center to a lot of the things that he does and you see it in like tenet and an inception and stuff like that that like they're not dark movies they're actually having fun but they're also not wearing the fun on their sleeve in the way that like something like a deadpool does well ben you need to tell tom wilkinson because he did not get the memo (laughs) can you explain what tom wilkinson is doing in this movie uh no i can't i mean there's so many just the weird flourishes and performances this movie. My friend always brings up the um, the woman who introduces Raz al Ghul at the dinner party, where she's like, "This is my friend Raz al Ghul." <laughs> it's like, what? What is going on? <laughs> yeah, you you definitely don't you don't get that as much in the sequels, but I mean, it's just weird to me that you have. <laughs> Tom Wilkinson doing whatever he's doing. You have Rutger Hauer in this movie. Just. Just some great classics. I love the fact that Christopher Nolan will bring back certain actors for certain roles. Certain actors that it seems like you haven't seen them in 20 years. And he does this all the time, and I love it. Like, I love that Eric Roberts is in The Dark Knight and that Tom Berenger is in Inception. (laughs) Yes. Like, actors who do, like, 17 other projects a year because they'll just do anything. And I'm not even saying Eric Roberts is good. I'm just saying, like, I like the idea that he is bringing these actors back. Yeah. Uh, the thing I find most fascinating about this movie is the fact that it does feel incredibly low-key. Like, you look at the box office gross in 2005, it's the ninth highest grossing movie of the year worldwide, but, like, it's within $200,000 of Hitch. Which was an enormous hit at that time. It was an enormous hit, but it feels weird to say that, like, yeah, Hitch almost outgrows Batman at a point in history. I mean, I think everybody was anticipating the Joker, and for a lot of reasons, The Dark Knight, I think, just became this cultural event. I think Batman Begins also benefited. I think a lot of people saw this movie on DVD as opposed to in the theater. And I think that's where the groundswell started to come in. Oh, absolutely. I remember like this was very much like a home video release that, that built up groundswell in like I mean it's not even early days of DVD, but it does feel like if you were to go back and look at like the best selling DVDs of two thousand five, like fuck off with your King Kongs and your Madagascars and your Mr. and Mrs. Smith, like it's Batman Begins that people were watching. And Christian Bale's great. Yes, I mean, again, we we rag on him for the the voice, but like he's a, he's a really good Batman. He's a really good balance of Batman and Bruce Wayne. I don't think that anyone else has been able to capture both parts that well. No, absolutely not. Right, so the next movie I watched for this, and Jesus Christ, is this movie incredible? Do the right thing. Just you know, I think Do the Right Thing is one of those movies that you could probably remake in 2020 with basically the same plot, add cell phones, and I think that this movie would still, in in sad ways, I think it would be very relevant, and I think in some good ways, I think it just feels like the ultimate slice, slice of life. This movie takes place over one day. It's It just works because it's not a plotty movie. I think this is one of those movies where if you are a story person, 
you are not going to like this movie. But if you are the person who likes characters and character development and watching interesting conversations, that's what you're getting with this. Because I think even watching this recently, I, you know, I've seen this movie a number of times, but watching it recently, like it still amazes me to this day just how present it feels in 2020 yeah no absolutely like even down to like and i've had this with a couple of like the older movies i've watched in preparation for this is that that the ones that really stick out feel so modern and i don't know if it's a depressing indictment that like society hasn't changed that much since like the 70s or 80s as much as you think it has or that these are the movies that are very presently talking about systemic issues that are still like very much around in the 2020s I mean, it might it might also be a combination of both, but I think you could capture this neighborhood and this feeling in many different places. You would not do it in Brooklyn now. Brooklyn is a very gentrified place compared to what you would understand in, in 1989. But I think what makes this work out so well is just the fact that these characters just feel, they feel authentic. And the fact that, you know, Spike Lee is in this movie as one of the most important characters and it just feels so natural. Like he feels like he feels a part of the, he feels like he's a part of the cast. He doesn't feel like he's the director of the movie who happens to also be in it as well. And I think all of the performances work from Danny Aiello to Rosie Perez. There is a point, I guess, in which Robert De Niro was being considered for the Danny Aiello part, and I'm really glad it was Danny Aiello because the movie would just be very different, and it would feel almost too big. That's why I like Danny Aiello in this role, and this movie just is, it's so present, and the reason it's so present is because of what happens to a character, you know, towards the end of the movie, that he is shot and killed by police, and again, 30 years later... We're having these same conversations about police murdering black men, especially, and destroying property and whether property should be destroyed and who has the right to destroy it and whose neighborhood is it and, you know, what role capitalism plays in all of that. These are issues that are still being discussed 31 years later. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, but obviously it feels like the, the legacy of this movie in a lot of ways is the, the treatment of the Academy Awards and how... It doesn't get a nomination for Best Picture or, or Best Director. Obviously, it loses to Driving... Well, it doesn't even lose to Driving Miss Daisy. It doesn't even get a chance to run against Driving Miss Daisy. And then the only actor in the cast that's nominated is an Italian-American. <laughs> Which is, like, that's almost insulting that the one person that you nominate from Do the Right Thing is the white actor. Yeah, absolutely. I, will, I would also like to point out that you get baby, uh, baby Giancarlo Esposito in this movie as well. Absolutely bizarre that he's in this, and then obviously like doesn't hit it big for for twenty years after this. Really, twenty years. I mean, it's it's just about thirty. It's almost twenty five years. I don't know when his first Breaking Bad appearances, but oh yeah, first Breaking Bad must be 2010, 2011. Yeah, I mean it's twenty, maybe close to twenty three years. But I mean he's he's remarkable. He's in a number of Spike Lee movies, and he's just very good, kind of just blending into the scenery. Not threatening people's lives. No. I mean, well, he, he is the instigator of the protest, so. <laughs> that is true, and he also does threaten the person in the Larry Bird 
the Larry Bird jersey, which is very much a real thing. Like that is something that absolutely would happen. The fact that you are wearing a basketball player's jersey and it's Larry Bird of all people, that was definitely a thing. Right, talk to me about bowling for Columbine. As a Brit, we look at America and go like, what the fuck are you doing as a country? I mean, I'm an American and I'm thinking this. Like, So if you've ever been on a dating profile site, Ben... Uh, I haven't. But if you are on a dating site in the right part of the United States, there will be people who will, in their profile pictures, be holding a gun, perhaps holding multiple guns, perhaps have a gun rack in the background. They may have a dead animal with a gun in their profile picture. I just, you probably can't even imagine that in your head right now. I mean, I can because I watch enough American culture. It's just so, (laughs) it's so utterly bizarre on like just a, a personal level of like, I mean, I have shotguns both in the UK and in America. Like I am not someone who will go around and go like, they are not available for like leisure activities if you're using them in a safe and controlled manner. But just the the fervorance that Americans feel that they should be able to own a weapon in their house and use it for self-defense against some nebulous idea of someone who's going to come and take their rights away is just insanity. I think regardless of what you think of Michael Moore and from a political standpoint, I certainly have problems with Michael Moore. Even as a filmmaker and the way he makes his movies, there are legitimate issues to discuss. What should not be in dispute is this is one of the most important documentaries that has ever been made, and I think it has had a tremendous impact on the way the documentaries are made, for better and for worse. And I just think that it is important to discuss this issue the way that Michael Moore does, because he puts a very particular type of spin on it that isn't just guns are bad, this is why, but he is explaining so much of the culture of this country and why guns are so important to this culture. And I don't know whether he reaches an answer. I don't know if there is a definitive answer, but the way that he is able to relate these issues to issues of race and class Regardless, again, regardless of what I think of Michael Moore personally at this point, Bowling for Columbine is a movie that had a tremendous impact on me because I saw this in theaters, probably one of the first documentaries that I ever saw in theaters, and it definitely had a profound impact on my beliefs and my perceptions, and even watching it in 2020, knowing what I do now, it just, again, just like Do the Right Thing, this is a movie that still feels very present and it doesn't feel like anything. If anything, things have gotten worse. Yeah, no, I mean, like, that's the thing is, like, you get to a point now where every time something like this happens in America, like, they trot out the, like, it's been seven days since the last mass murder in America because of guns and all the rest of it. And it just becomes like this collective shrug almost at this point. Like, Columbine, obviously, there have been tragedies in america like sandy hook and all kinds of things but columbine feels like the last time that like there was this much attention given to one specific shooting in a lot of ways from the culture like the fact that there is movies like elephant that exist that are fictional retellings of this and a documentary about it like there's just no other mass shooting in america since even ones with higher death counts that have had the amount of scrutiny and attention like uh, 
I mean, speaking as a Brit who was into video games, like the one thing that always was like a cultural thing for me was the way that like Doom and stuff like that were blamed for like what they were doing. And it almost felt like we are going to blame something, but the thing that we're going to blame is not the thing that lets them do this, but the thing where they are like, I don't know, like something that most people don't get radicalized by. Yeah, I, I'm not. I don't want to say that this movie radicalized me because I think there are other things that have done that, but it certainly made me much more mindful of guns and gun control because you know I live in a city and a state where there are very strict gun rules. So just the level of access that I have is so much more different than if I lived in a in a state in the in the southern United States, which I do otherwise. But yeah, I mean, it's just, it's really tough because these are still issues that exist today and and they're they're not going to go away anytime soon. And as long as we have the, uh, the Second Amendment and people don't want to change it, this is just going to be an issue. I've just really depressed myself in our last two conversations. Hey, I mean, the NRA is collapsing, so like maybe there's some hope on the horizon. But then there's going to be, there's going to be other organizations that replace... Yeah, but maybe they won't be as like monopolistic as the NRA was. It feels like the NRA was the big boogeyman, and but who knows at this point. Let's move on. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yeah, this is a very it's different in almost any every conceivable way that we what we've been talking about. And uh, I will say I'm not you know I'm not as big of a fan of westerns, but I think this movie is so different. It's so entertaining. This is another William Goldman script with Robert Redford and Paul Newman in the leads. Their chemistry is remarkable. Got a great use of a Burt Bacharach song. Spider-Man 2, Spider-Man 2 can only wish that it used that song as good as this movie did. So this is another one of the ones that I've not seen. And maybe it becomes from like me not being a huge fan of Westerns either. But like what makes what elevates this particular Western over other ones? I mean, the fact that it's not a traditional Western, that the the the, the, it, they would ordinarily in regular westerns be the antagonists but in this case they are protagonists so in a lot of ways I, I don't know the history of cinema well enough to say these are the first two anti-heroes in the history of cinema but they are definitely early versions of that and the fact that we are following the bad guys and rooting for the bad guys and that you get issues of kind of capitalism that come up in this movie. I mean, I just think that it works. It's it's also shot really, really well. Shot very differently than a lot of Westerns because it's not like you're shooting in a Western town with like the sheriff and the and the horses and whatnot. It just, it feels very modern in a way. And if you watch movies from this time period, this Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid just makes me, it makes me feel much differently. I've heard some people say like this is the first quote-unquote modern movie and I don't know whether I agree with that or not but it definitely has a very different sensibility. I mean in like a way that we're saying that it feels like a precursor to Hollywood in the 70s is that what we're saying as a yes, modern movie? Yes, definitely. Yeah, I would say it feels a lot like what you would eventually see in the 1970s with, not so, with maybe a not so happy and clear cut ending like the romance, the romance stuff is a little different than you would see in other movies, and like even the use of a Burt a Burt Bacharach song in a western is just unusual. Interesting to look at it and see like mixed reviews and terrible reviews from people. Like Roger Ebert giving it a two point five out of four stars feels like insanity, but like it feels like I'm watching a lot of these movies at the moment and seeing like 
people like Pauline Kael and Roger Ebert not understanding what would end up becoming like a sea change movie or like a, a huge, huge critical success. Well, and very often Roger Ebert would actually go back and revise, not revise his reviews, but he would do like there are definitely been movies that he kind of panned at first, but eventually he would come back around to admit he was wrong and say, no, this movie really was great. So I, I do appreciate that. I know some people have kind of critiqued that, but I really do love the idea that, you know, th- that Ebert especially would come around and reevaluate his opinions because they do change. And sometimes you will see a movie and not like it, and then you'll watch it years later and you'll be like, this movie's great, or, and v- vice versa. There's certainly movies that, again, would have been on this list in 2000 that are not on this list because I don't think they're as good as I thought they were at that time. No, absolutely. Like, your taste is allowed to change and you're allowed to have like contextualizing moments in your life to like figure out why something doesn't work or maybe something doesn't work as well as does now as it did 20 years ago so i'm very intrigued by your placement for this next one creed our second or third kugler movie on this list but also you've got it higher than rocky any like what is it about creed that you think works better than the original rocky i think what's problematic about rocky is the fact that so creed is basically supposed to be muhammad ali but he is positioned as kind of the bad He's positioned as the antagonist, and Rocky is positioned as this great white hope. And I think where Creed, Creed is able to subvert that by, in this case, you have a black American who is the byproduct of an affair, and then he gets adopted uh, by Creed's wife, and he elevates himself and wants to fight and wants to become a boxer just like his father just like Rocky, and I love the story that is told, and I love the impact that Creed has on Rocky's life. I, I can't, I almost can't believe that Sylvester Stallone would agree to do this movie, and that he would agree for Rocky to have cancer, because that 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 definitely took me by surprise um, when I was seeing some of the trailers and and the movie itself, like that they would put this character through that. And I think it's just, it's really powerful. It's really energetic. I think the direction in this movie and, you know, Rocky didn't really have a budget. And I think John Avildsen in many ways did what he could. And I think he did a very good job, but Ryan Coogler definitely got a budget and the way that the boxing is shot, probably the best I've ever seen boxing look in cinema. The one take when they uh, do an early fight of Adonis is is magical. It's just it's so well done and yeah, I, I really, really genuinely love Creed more than Rocky, even though I think I mean, Creed could not exist without Rocky but I think Creed is so much a better execution of what Rocky was trying to do. I mean, I watch both of them back to back. I think they're both absolutely tremendous movies, just sterling examples of the genre <laughs> in in every single way and i find it fascinating that boxing more so than any other sport feels like it's lent itself to this genre of film in such a tremendous way and i think tessa thompson also gets a lot more agency than talia shair i think that's another reason that i like this movie more uh, right so we're into the top 20 now number 20 spotlight number 19 through 17 you've got all the lord of the rings trilogy and number 16 mad max free road matt waters favorite movie <laughs> certainly is how about this 2015 run i mean these movies 2015 might be my favorite movie year of all time and what i want to point out about spotlight is that this movie won best picture it's on my list 
And I still don't think it should have won Best Picture because I think Mad Max is the one that should have won Best Picture. Yeah, I mean, Mad Max is a masterpiece. And, like, even, like, I've got Creed at number seven on my 2015 list, Spotlight at number six. I think there are a couple of movies that you've got on here that you uh, that I've got on my top ten that you don't have on your list. Like, I've got Carol in my top five. I've got Mustang. I've got Son of Saul. But yeah, like it's a really, really good year, and Spotlight is, whilst not my favorite movie of this selection, like I, I can see exactly why it wins, and like it, it's exactly the kind of movie that is done just so exceptionally well. Like everyone who's in it is giving a great performance. It's got a sense of urgency to it, even though obviously it's it's what ten, fifteen years after the actual story that they're talking about happened. Yeah, it's about 10 to 15 years. And I mean, this is a really this is a really important story. And I don't know the impact that it has on you, because I know that the UK is not as Catholic as America is or pockets of America are. But the Catholic Church is is a really important you know, part of the world. And this is a story that would ultimately cross over into the world. And the fact that it was broken by these reporters and I mean, you want to talk about competence porn. This is, this is peak competence porn right here. And the fact that they were able to make this movie the way that they did in the year that they did is just, it's really impressive to me because there are a lot of different ways that this could have been screwed up. And I think it could have felt exploitative, but everybody has, the, the, the performances are dialed just right. Like Mark Ruffalo and Stanley Tucci can go very big and broad, but they don't for the most part. Michael Keaton, I think, is cast perfectly in his role. You've got John Slattery as Ben Bradley Jr. I think one of the great tragedies is that we cannot get John Slattery as Ben Bradley Jr. Jr. in a movie where Jason Robards is playing Ben Bradley. That is that's a real shame in my mind. I mean, you can do one with Tom Hanks if you really wanted to. Tom Hanks, I mean, I like Tom Hanks, but Jason Robards as Ben Bradley, especially when you hear the real Ben Bradley speak, you will uh, you understand that Jason Robards is much more closer to who Bren- Ben Bradley is. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, but yeah, Spotlight is great, and I, uh, I am a former Catholic, so this is a movie that definitely had a tremendous impact on me, and this story... The stories that they broke had a tremendous impact on me when they broke in 2002 because, I mean, this is just one of the most horrifying things that you could ever, that could ever happen. Yeah, I mean, it feels like, I mean, obviously I I can't speak because I'm 10 when this stuff gets broken out, but it feels like something that's been part of my entire life is the knowledge of the Catholic Church's misdeeds. Uh, And it feels so inescapable and it feels like it's, like, even to the point where, like, it is almost a, a very obnoxious punchline that people bring up rather than like the serious indictment of systemic problems within the Catholic church that it really is. Yeah, for sure. And that's really that all that could be said. I think Tom McCarthy just did a really great job of representing this story and handling it with the dignity that it deserves. And again, another great unsung supporting performance by Billy Crudup. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, a great, a great underrated actor. Uh, not a great Doctor Manhattan, though. No, but we don't, we don't talk about that. We talk about the Good Watchmen that aired on television. Oh, what a crazy time we live in! Right, Lord <laughs> of the Rings. 
Um, I have got the 4K extended remaster sat in a basket on a website. I'm like itching to press it because I've not watched Lord of the Rings in so goddamn long and I've never seen the extended cuts. So I'm excited to hear you wax lyrical about something you watched this year in podcast this year. So I love, I, I have no problems with the extended cuts of Fellowship and Two Towers. The Return of the King is way too long. The extended edition of Return of the King, it just, it crosses the threshold of being entertaining and going into, can we please just end the movie at this point? So I don't know how it's going to strike you, but basically the versions that I are on this list are the theatrical versions of the trilogy, which I think is the second greatest trilogy that has ever been put forth. You want to talk about a miracle? These three movies are a miracle. When you shoot multiple movies at the same time, I feel like that hasn't worked in most cases in situations like The Matrix and the sequel, back, the Back to the Future sequels. You have Peter Jackson, who is an unheralded director. I, I just, I still can't believe that these three movies are as good as they are, especially with the fact that The Hobbit was so terrible. Those three movies are very bad, in my opinion. So I don't know what your thoughts are on The Hobbit, but it makes me appreciate Lord of the Rings all the more because it's just Im- almost impeccably cast, uh, just well written. The, the effects still hold up 20 years later. And Return of the King absolutely deserved to win Best Picture for the achievement of all three movies, I think. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I've only seen the first half of the first Hobbit movie and then noped out and just have not brought myself to watch them since. Um, Yeah, I mean, I read these books when I was so young. The Hobbit was like an audio book that I had on repeat uh, and I would use it to try and go to sleep. And then I read Lord of the Rings, I think. The, the most exciting thing I can say about Lord of the Rings is that, like, not only have I written very long essays at university on on these books, including one where I'm, like, comparing it to Beowulf, um, but also... So does this mean you're going to pull out your dissertation like Matt Waters did for uh, for one of your your podcasts? Alas, we, we haven't covered what I wrote my dissertation on yet, so that's going to have to stay in my back pocket for a while. This was just a regular essay that I had to write. That is terribly unfortunate. I know. I don't think we'll ever get to like what I actually wrote my dissertation on, but maybe we will someday, but we'll find out. But I think the most glowing recommendation I can make about this is like having read the books, and obviously their masterworks, they're absolutely fantastic, but like on a structural level, these movies improve on like the one big downside of the books, which is that are, because it is six individual books that are like, and the, the Two Towers and Return of the King very much separate the actual going on, goings on of Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli from what's going on with, with Frodo and Sam, is that the way that the movie manages to intercut between the two of them and build the tension simultaneously, rather than have them be two completely separate book experiences, makes them feel so much more propulsive than the Lord of the Rings books are. Yeah, and I think you can see a lot of the influence on Game of Thrones. I think Game of Thrones, in a lot of ways, took that structure and adapted it for for that for that show as well. Yeah, absolutely. That show that doesn't exist. But you know what does exist? Mad Max, Fury Road, which... I, I can't believe anybody would not like this. I mean, I mean we have to we have to we have to dive into Matt Waters' opinions. Can I remember his actual review? So let me wax poetic about this movie and why it's so great for just a second. So I think in 2015 you get basically three reboots. You get Mad Max Fury Road, you get Creed, and you get Star Wars Episode Seven: The Force Awakens. Why 
why Mad Max and Creed are on this list and Force Awakens is not is Mad Max and Creed have new things to say. They have new characters to incorporate. Creed, obviously, has Adonis Creed. Mad Max Fury Road has Furiosa. What they do is they stealthily take this Mad Max character, they basically make him a supporting player, and they make Furiosa the lead. Furiosa is kind of the emotional centerpiece of this movie, and it works. It really works, and there are certainly elements of this movie that I still think are problematic, but this movie is absolutely incredible. What George Miller does, he, like George Miller, sees the saturating colors of so many blockbusters, and he decides that he's going to make one of the most colorful movies of the year. He is 68 years old or 70 years old, and he decides to make one of the most propulsive movies of all time. He is not going to use a lot of computer effects. He's just going to have a guy playing a guitar that shoots out flames. This movie is just great from the moment it starts to the moment it finishes. I can't believe a 70-year-old or near 70-year-old person did this. I can't imagine doing a movie like this now and having the energy to do what it took to put this together. I, 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 this movie is just great. Yeah, just absolutely phenomenal. Like, there's there's thematic depth to it. Everyone is so good. The fact that, like, you listen to them on set and they're sat there going, like, I do not understand what we're doing. But when we got to see the footage of it, it was like it clicked. Like, he had a vision that no one else was able to see, but he was able to so fully enact on that vision and bring it to, to life that he creates what might be the greatest action movie of all time. It is certainly in the running. I'm not sure if I totally agree with that based on what else is on my list, but it is certainly a contender. And in a few years, I may feel differently. I think I think this movie should have won Best Picture. I think George Miller should have won Best Director because, and I know the Oscars never rewards genre movies like this, but I think this is it is undeniable the impact that this movie has had and the way that it is stuck in people's minds. Oh, absolutely. I'm I'm very intrigued. Like if they were to someday release the ballots of like how close movies come, I would be shocked to find out if something else came higher up than than Mad Max in second place for best picture. And it just feels like like the academy of enough sticks up their asses that like they're going to go for the more traditional picture, but there's enough upstarts that are like this movie is undeniable. And I mean, like, keep in mind, like, I have, I have other 2015 movies, Spotlight, Creed, Inside Out. I still think Mad Max Fury Road is a step above all of those movies that I just mentioned. And we still give directed to Inaritu for the the second year in a row. Ugh. And he's and a that, perfectly fine. He's a fine director. I think that's Nothing the most. Ins- it's the most insulting thing about it all. Is I understand. They went through hell. They shot it all with natural light, but that feels like so much more of a Like that's that's like the cinematographer's job, not so much Inaritu. And like you gave him director last year, he is not so undeniable a director that you need to reward him twice, especially when you've got George Miller coming back, having never won director at this point. Yeah, absolutely true. Um, uh, but Matt Waters' review, which I couldn't find online, but basically summed up as they drive one place and then they drive back. It's just kind of boring. I don't even know what to say to that because like technically that is true, but there's a lot more to it. (laughs) This is why I did not want to record a 90 minute episode on this movie with him. And we have done contentious movies, but I did not want to do that particular contentious movie with him. 
I mean, we could we could talk ninety minutes so easily about this movie. Just... I, mean, I I literally watched every single George Miller movie this year, and the fact that he goes from like making this Mad Max trilogy to making like Oscar hopeful movies like Lorenzo's Oil to making the second Babe movie to Happy Feet, and then coming back and making this is just insanity well i think he was i think he directed the two happy feet movies specifically so he could direct this movie yes that is absolutely true like he did the second one definitely he did on like contingency that he got the budget and the freedom to do whatever the fuck he wanted but this movie especially after his justice league movie kind of blew up in his face man if george miller i don't even know if the justice league movie with him would be good but i i would i would love to see it yeah, I, I just want to like see what it would have looked like at the end of the day, like because the cast sounds interesting enough, the idea sounds interesting enough. It was going to be better than Snyder's version, no matter what. So, I mean, we wouldn't have had to try very hard to do that. <sighs> although movie, I don't know, I although Joss Whedon couldn't make a better version than Zack Snyder could. Yeah, but he was picking up the pieces that have been like he was he was building a, a mountain out of shit. Like no matter what happens, like even if it's a very tall mountain, it's still a mountain of shit. Moving on, top 15, South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, Inglorious Bastards, Inception, All the President's Men. Uh, South Park, Bigger, Longer, Uncut, one of my best friends' favorite movies of all time. You know, I don't think that that opinion is absurd, so I want to know your thoughts on this, because I know what my feelings are on South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. Amongst my friend group, a certain friend group, this is definitely one of the favorites, but I'm curious to know, like, what do you think of this movie? I mean, this is the best thing that South Park's ever done. I agree. Like, I mean, I have watched an awful lot of South Park. South Park was... There are a lot of problems with South Park, especially in terms of... It feels emblematic of a kind of nihilism that became very, very popular in the mid-2000s. Um, I, I agree with everything you're saying. And, and like, the show has occasional bright spots of great comedy, but it kind of gets mired down in this, like, both siderisms, like, caring sucks, why do you care about this, that just poisons the well and is a huge, huge drag on, like, society as a whole at this point, especially um, white cis men who are on the internet. Like, it feels like their entire personality is based around not caring. And these, like, Trey Parker and Matt Stone are at their best when they do throwback musicals. Like, I, I mean, like, Book of Mormon has its problems, but, like, when these guys do songs and musicals and do something fun like this, they kind of don't have room to put their normal nihilism in it <laughs> in a way that's quite as damaging. I think that's that's really astute. And I think the fact that they are telling a story in a movie, I think, also helps because one of the things that South Park is constantly trying to do is they are trying to constantly be very current and up to the date and i don't think they could do that as much and i think some of the issues that they discuss in the movie are still very present there are aspects of this movie that have not aged well but i think this this movie rules it's just it's the shortest movie on the list <laughs> an hour and 15 minutes but i think the songs are actually good like unironically i think the songs are very good. It should have won an Oscar. Like, uh, Blaine Canada should have won the Oscar for Best Song. It should, but also it's not the best song in the movie, but I also understand why it's the only song from the movie that they could have possibly nominated. Like, the, I mean, yes, every song... <laughs> every song could have been nominated. Satan's the one that Satan sings. Cosmob's a bitch. I mean, they could have nominated them all. And the, I, I definitely... I actually have... 
I had a CD with the soundtrack. That's how much I love the songs. Right, but they had to give it to Phil Collins for You'll Be In My Heart and Tarzan. And I will say I love that Trey Parker and Matt Stone went all in on, on Phil Collins in the in the subsequent episode after. It was kind of petty, but it was also pretty But yeah, I mean, this is a, the best thing they've ever done. It's it's a fantastic movie. Um, it's kind of like, is this the best movie based on a TV show ever? I mean, it's it's definitely up there. It is definitely... I, I'm, I'm trying to think of, like, if there's anything that's even come close, and I'm having a hard time, but just, like, this movie very much is strictly based off a TV show. Like, I think about, like, Widows, which I know is based off a British TV show. I would say that's up there, but that's not really the same thing, though, because this is, this is like, the same cast. This is the same voices, and Widows was almost, like, an adaptation. I mean, like, maybe you throw Mission Impossible in there, but that feels like such a different beast at this point. Yeah, I mean, Mission Impossible is definitely, if you if you just take the original Mission Impossible movie, I would say that that is at least a reasonable facsimile of the show, then I would say that that's, that's at least close. But, I mean, as, I, I would say that this movie is better. It's something I would definitely watch before Mission Impossible, and I do like Mission Impossible, but... Not as much, not as much as this Yeah, I mean, I'm guessing, like, all you've really got in contention are, like, Wrath of Khan, Naked Gun, if you're saying that it's based on Police Squad. Yeah. And then maybe, like, Blues Brothers or something, but even then, that's just, it's a spin-off of SNL. Yeah, I mean, like, how do you consider, like, a Wayne's World? Like, that's, that, I mean, it's that's a sketch versus a TV show. Right. So I'm guessing this next movie is what you were saying is, like, the best action movie of all time, and I'm inclined to agree... I think uh, yeah. it is. Yeah, I think it's it's my favorite James Cameron movie. I think it's it's the thing I love about James Cameron is I love the way that he directs kids because he doesn't direct them like kids. I think the thing about Spielberg that really bothers me sometimes is that when kids are in his movies, they are so precocious and annoying that it drags the movie down. I'm looking specifically at you, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. I think that this movie works because Edward Furlong is very good. Certainly a problematic figure now, but he's very good, and he has to be. He is carrying parts of this movie, just as Arnold Schwarzenegger is, and just as Linda Hamilton is. I love that Robert Patrick, I love that James Cameron made the decision in 1991 to turn T-1000 into a police officer. Even keeping in mind the current times of that period after Rodney King, like that is such a brilliant decision that still holds up to this day, knowing what we do about police officers and, and all that jazz. I think the special effects, they admittedly are not, they do not have, they have not aged as well in some cases, but for the most part, when you put it into the context of it's 1991, I still think a lot of the effects work out really well. It's just a really well-told story um, with, with a lot of emotion, even though it's an action movie, there's a lot of heart to this movie and there's some great character interactions between the Terminator and John Connor and even Sarah Connor and the psychiatrist and Sarah Connor and a whole bunch of people. I could talk about Terminator 2 all day. I think this movie is pretty great. And it's uh, it's definitely my favorite James Cameron movie by by far. Because you know he raised the bar. He did raise the bar. What do you think of Terminator 2? Any, 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 any additional thoughts? Not really. I mean, Terminator 2 was just one of those movies where, like, I watched Terminator first on, like, a recorded off the TV VHS, and then... 
That is exactly how I saw this movie too for the first time. <laughs> it's just it's just tremendous. Like I must have worn out this like VHS tape of it, just like rewatching certain things. Definitely being far too young for it, but like there is just something about it where like it it's definitely less adult than Terminator One, but it's still. I, I, I don't know, like, it's just, like, the, the entire concept of, like, making the movie where the Terminator doesn't kill anyone is just, like, a refreshing right turn from that first movie, in a lot of ways. I almost wish that I could watch this movie and not know that he's the good guy at first. Like, I wish I lived in a world where I saw the first one, and saw the second one, and didn't know that he was the good guy, because that it makes the moment when it's revealed that he's not all the more powerful. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Right, Inglorious Bastards. Um, I've waxed lyrical about this movie. This is my favorite Tarantino. Uh, obviously, you you have another Tarantino higher up the list, but like, God, this is just a tremendous, tremendous thing. And I think I don't want to say that like Tarantino spent a few years in the wilderness, like uh, in between, like in the in the early two thousands and stuff like that with Death Proof. But like, this felt like such a tremendous return to form for him. I feel like the difference between this Tarantino and the Tarantino of even a Kill Bill. It felt like he was a much more patient filmmaker than he was in those previous movies because he really takes his time to set up every set piece, even to set up the finale. That's the thing that I love about this movie so much is that he will have 20 minutes of dialogue and two minutes of just violence and and chaos. And he does this multiple times and it works every single time because Tarantino is a very good filmmaker. That's what I love about this movie. And Christoph Waltz, I think having him as the center of this movie, in, so, in, in a lot of ways it feels like he's the lead, even though he's regarded as the supporting character. But it really feels like he's the one that, that, that's, that is kind of at the center and kind of stirring the, the straw that stirs the drink, so to speak. But it's, it's crazy to me that Michael Fassbender became a star in this movie, and he's only in the movie for like 10 minutes. But it's it's such a good performance. Yeah, it's it's like ten of the best minutes. Like this is on your reel. Like this is what you put on your reel to to showcase what a good actor you are. And it's just it's. I mean, I, Tarantino does not have a lot of deep things to say about the geopolitical situation, but it feels like Inglorious Bastards has actually aged the best of his movies simply because killing Nazis is a good idea and not treating them with respect is a good idea. Absolutely. I mean, I'm very intrigued to see what would have happened if they got Adam Sandler to play the bear Jew just out of like wanting to find out what that looks like. God, that would be, I want, I want to see the, I want to see Inglorious Bastards with Adam Sandler as the bear Jew. I want to see Django Unchained with Will Smith. Don't think he would have, that one I'm not too sold on. I don't know if it would be better. I just would like to see it. Fair. I mean, like, but that's the thing is, like, I think half the fun of the modern Tarantino projects are like seeing who he approaches for roles and seeing who he only roles. And obviously, like, it's getting to a point now where like he can get anyone he wants, really. Yeah, I mean, nobody's going to turn down the opportunity to do even be in a Tarantino movie for like a minute. Think about all the, the like, think about all the TV actors that were in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for like two minutes. And I'm presuming it's because they wanted to be in a Tarantino movie, but he's really good at writing dialogue, and he's also really good at just at just letting actors act and letting uh, unknown actors act. And how many people have either become a star or resurrected their career specifically because they were in a Tarantino movie? I bet we could make a list, and I bet we could come up with 25 names like that. 
Oh, absolutely. And also the fact that he's becoming almost like an incredibly reliable, like, Academy Award winner for, like, actors as well. Well, and, and, you know, I think, I know that there are people that are frustrated by the idea of Tarantino's going to make his 10th movie and then he's going to peace out, but, like, given the directors that we have talked about, we've talked about Cameron Crowe, Zemeckis, if Tarantino's done after 10 and he's like, I don't want to do this anymore, I would rather have 10 unassailable classics than to watch a late-stage Tarantino movie and be like, well, this isn't very good. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, like, I hope he stays around. I hope he does stuff like write scripts or, like, starts using his clout to start building up filmmakers. I think that's the one thing that I've always found a bit annoying about Tarantino is that he hasn't really started to sculpt careers in the same way. Like, he is obviously someone who is so incredibly indebted to classic cinema, like, be that, like, 50s B-movies or, like, pulp classics and stuff like that. But, like, he has not used that clout to go, like, this is who I view as, like, the next generation filmmaker, apart from possibly Rodriguez. We are we are basically at the, at the top 12, so to speak. And I think for me, what makes these, uh, what makes this work so well is, like, for me, even though these this is the top 12, these are the movies that I basically consider to be my definitive, like, 12 favorite movies. And the reason that it's 12 partially it's because we have one more trilogy to discuss but when you when i think about like these these are the ones that i would probably list off immediately right away i mean that's fair enough i mean you've got a couple of like my favorite movies in this list uh so yeah let's get to it so inception so th- i mean spoilers for higher up the list this isn't your your final nolan but like why is this your favorite original nolan idea i think that it just works for me when I first saw it in the movie theaters. I think it's a very dense and complicated story. I have also talked about on previous other, on my other podcast, I'm a huge fan of heist movies and you will see a number of heist movies on this list. And I consider inception to be a version of a heist movie. It's very different. It's very unique. I love the presentation of it. I love that Leonardo DiCaprio is basically playing Christopher Nolan in this movie, it's it's got such a unique feel to it. Just right from the beginning, the way that it throws you into this world doesn't really explain it at first. And I think it asks a lot of the audience at times, but I think that it is very much creeped into our pop culture. I think the idea of incepting ideas, I think it's kind of crossed over. I think, you know, the South anytime South Park parodies anything, I think it kind of shows just how important of a pop culture um, touchstone that it is. And I think for all those reasons, that's why Inception is so great. I think that this, this is definitively my favorite movie of the 2010s. And I pretty much always believe that, that this and Mad Max Fury Road definitively, I think, are the best movies of this decade. I mean, that's fair enough. I mean, I I love there's there's a kick out of seeing an original Nolan idea done spectacularly well. Like, I think my favorite of those is Memento. Um, but like I got such a kick out of seeing uh, Tenet in cinemas and going like, oh, this is him working in Inception mode again in a lot of ways. I think like obviously it's it's ten years on and you can see the cracks in the formula. But I had such a, a visceral love of watching that movie kind of do and i think i mean there's all kinds of stuff about this where like this feels like 
the first time that Leo is kind of like hanging loose and not chasing that Oscar in a way that he had been for like the last 10 years before this. Yeah, I think I appreciate that as well. I mean, all the performances are great. You know, I think you get Joseph Gordon-Levitt as uh, as kind of the producer. I love the idea that this is kind of a this is kind of serving in as a as a way of making films and Christopher Nolan is trying to get home to his family and kids. I mean, I think that is uh, genuinely amusing. You've got the dead wife and girlfriend. Uh, you've got Elliot Page kind of doing what he does and I just think that this is a movie that works so incredibly well. And I love the relationship between DiCaprio and Paige. I think it's one of those things that doesn't get really talked about um, because of kind of the way that just, I don't think Nolan gets a lot of credit for writing dialogue. And I think Inception, I think it does fall into the trap of a lot of, a lot of Nolan movies, but I think there is some genuinely interesting dialogue between Paige and DiCaprio that happens in their scenes. And I think oh. the, the, the way they bounce off each other, I think is really great. Yeah, this feels like such an impeccably cast film. I mean, because obviously Paige has their Oscar nomination at this point. But, like, Tom Hardy's the start of his career. It feels like Joseph Gordon-Levitt is just kind of, like, coming into himself at this point. Like, it's it's a great mix of, like, people who are very obviously going to be defining cinema for, like, the next ten years. And then also weaponizing Leonardo DiCaprio's star power in a way that hasn't really been done in a blockbuster up to this point. And like and it almost in a way that like I don't think anyone else has done apart from Tarantino since, really. And I love the score. I mean I know people make fun of the Hans Zimmer the score especially for this movie, but I love the way that music is used in all of Nolan's movies, and I think here it is especially effective. And just the editing of the last forty five minutes, I think that's what makes that is what Nolan does best is just the way that things cut from one situation to another, and just the fact that every like every level of the dream looks and feels so much different than the previous one. That's also something that that just works about about this movie. And even ten years later, like you kind of know when you watch a, a Christopher Nolan movie, you know what you're getting yourself into. And even ten years later, I still really like Inception. I don't know if the plot fully makes sense. But man, like it's just like for for a movie that's so dense and complicated, it's also really fun. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's uh, yeah, it's just a great movie. And now I I feel like of anything, this is the one that I'm probably going to rewatch after discussing it <laughs> across all of this. I mean, it's it's definitely a movie that I've seen probably a lot more than other movies from this decade, just because it's so it's so easily rewatchable. That's fair enough. Uh, but we're going to talk about a movie that I only watched the other day in preparation for this, and that's number 11, All the President's Men, the definitive journalism film. This is the definitive journalism film. I don't think, I think we sometimes live in a very hyperbolic society and a hyperbolic world, but I feel confident in saying that this is the definitive journalism movie that made people want to go to journalism school to become the next Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. And it's funny how... You know, very similarly, after I wrote about Harry Potter and J.K. Rowling kind of got enveloped in kind of her very her very stupid tweets, like Bob Woodward also got into a lot of hot water for releasing a book about Trump, despite the fact that he had a lot of a lot of reporting that probably should have been set in February or March as the pandemic started instead of waiting for the book to be published. So it's just funny how that works out. But I mean, Dustin Hoffman and Robert Rutherford are, are tremendous in these roles. You know, I think 
we it's really easy to think of big stars as being in movies together because of things like the Avengers and you know, Martin Scorsese is just able to call up whoever he wants. But to get Hoffman and Redford in a movie together is a big deal. And they're both in the, they are in the primes of their careers at this point. And you've also got a great murderous row of supporting characters and supporting players, including Jane Alexander, Carl Malden, and Jason Robards. This might be one of my favorite supporting performances ever because Jason Robards is such a crank. And I know we've talked about like great dad speeches. It's not a dad speech, but that speech that he gives at the end uh, tells him to go home for 15 minutes, take a bath and then get up and, or else he's going to get really mad. That is one of the all time great speeches in cinema. Yeah, no, I mean, he's right. I've had a weird year of like watching a hell of a lot of like Jason Robards movies where I've seen like Philadelphia and Parenthood and Melvin and Howard and all the president's men. And like, just a, I, I don't want to call him underrated because obviously like he wins Oscar for this role and he wins, like he's got a couple of Oscars in his belt, but like just a great, great performer. And kind of it blows Tom Hanks's interpretation of Brent Bradley out of the water from the post. Yeah, it's funny. That's one of the reasons that I really didn't like the post is because I had this frame of reference for Ben Bradley, both in hearing him as a real person and because I think Jason Robards just nails the essence of who he is. But, you know, I think the, the other reason that this movie works is that if you like competence porn and if you are a process porn person like I am, this is this is definitely also the movie for you because they basically just go step by step by step in trying to expose the Watergate scandal. And the thing that I appreciate is that even after seeing this movie as many times as I have, I still don't quite understand how this scandal was able to take place. But I I am aware enough to know that there was malfeasance and that Richard Nixon absolutely deserved to resign and probably should have gone to jail for what he did. But, I mean, it's just a very difficult plot to understand. But I think the way that Alan J. Pakula was a legendary director in his own way i think just the way that he renders it is uh, is really great because he incorporates elements of kind of spy thrillers and i mean just some really great great shots in this movie as well as i love the panning backwards and just showing how big the library is and also the panning back as they're driving around and you see how kind of how big washington dc is i mean those are those are some small moments that i think really work yeah, I think my only complaint, really, because this was just a, a wonderful display across the board, was, like, being someone who isn't aware of the intricacies of, of the Watergate scandal, it felt like they would go from scene to scene and they would have figured out a new piece of information in between scenes, and I had to kind of, like, rush to keep up with, like, where they where they were at and stuff like that. And then also just, it's such a sudden ending. Like, the movie ends with, like, the threat of, like, oh, they're, they're bugging us and and that people might lose their lives or whatever, like they might be coming for us and stuff like that. And then it's just the uh, the inauguration speech and and then typing the story. And then you just get this like barrage of like all the things that happen in the, in the months following the publication of that story. I mean, this is a unique movie in that kind of the events of the movie are still happening as it is being presumably shot and produced. So I think it's hard to create distance. I wonder what this movie would be like even just a few years later. But the reason that I like the fact that it comes out in 1975 is not just because it makes 1975 one of the greatest movie years 
ever, but I don't think that this movie is as good as, as, good as it is if it's produced in 1984-85, because cinema changes a lot in those 10 years, and I don't think it would have been as well done. I mean, Alan J. Pakula, the, the kind of movies that he makes are just very different if you look at his 1980s and even 1990s output as opposed to this. Right, number 10. Uh, a movie I'm actually going to disagree with you with, High Fidelity. Uh, I didn't love this when I saw it a couple of years ago for the first time. Now, do you think that's because you're also a, a music fan and you just that's the part of it you reject? It was it was sort of both of it. It was like the music stuff felt so pretentious. Like, I worked in a record store for a number of years. I am that kind of snobby but like there was just a, a level of aggression to the way that it was that i just didn't find particularly amusing. so what you're felt, saying is it hit too close to home for you i don't know it felt just too gatekeepery and i like i i'm i'm snobby but i'm not gatekeepery i think is <laughs> <clears throat> see but i think that's kind of the point of the movie though is that i think it is that and i think i think with 20 years of perspective i think we should all understand that rob gordon is not a good person well that, like, that was the other thing was like I couldn't get a handle on that, like whether or not the movie is an indictment of this man crafting lists, lists of women and stuff like that, and like the the, mo the most devastating breakups of all time and stuff like that, and whether or not the movie was anti him or whether or not the movie was on his side. I think that was my main kind of like grapple with the movie was watching him do these these successive like revisiting his exes and and all the rest of it, but then being flawed in the same way with the... Who, who is it he's pursuing in, in the movie itself? Uh, I, f I am completely blanking on the actress's name, but her, her character's name is Laura. Yes. I mean, I, and then... But it was weird, because I've been watching the, the Hulu series uh, recently as well, and it feels like it fixes a lot of my complaints with the movie. I and can I see that. And I, to be fair, I really like both. I'm really sad there's not going to be a second season. So I'm not being a gatekeeper in that I really like that we are getting, that we have a new perspective on Rob Gordon as a woman of color living in Brooklyn. I really like both. Uh, the reason that I, the movie, I really liked it. I think it's the best John Cusack has ever been. I think he takes something that could feel very ugly and not, not good in that he is top, he is breaking the fourth wall talking to the camera, something that I think is really hard to do and can come across really ham-fisted. I think he makes this work. I mean, just in general, I think John Cusack is kind of an underrated actor. But I think that maybe part of it is I see a lot of myself in Rob Gordon for better and for worse. And, I'll you know, when I talk to my therapist, we can, I can talk more about that fact. But, like... Just the fact that it's in Chicago, maybe that's also another reason that I am also biased for this movie. But I, I just think that it, it it definitely hits you when you see this at 16, 17 like I did. And even though I'm not a huge music person, I think this movie just hit me at the right time, in the right place. And also Jack Black's really great in this movie too. Jack Black is a lot of fun, and like getting to see Jack Black sing is always is always a pleasure. Like I think it is different in me coming to it when I'm like 25 years old and kind of being like, "Ooh, I'm not not sure of what's going on here." <laughs> so I will say that I, I definitely think that there are some problematic elements, and if I was seeing it for the first time now, maybe I, I would probably feel differently. But you know, this is one of those movies that I definitely watch frequently, especially after a breakup. Which I don't know what that says about me. 
I mean, it's fair enough. I mean, I find myself not being attracted to like pricklier romantic comedies. Like I watched uh, You've Got Mail for the first time this year, and I know a lot of people love You've Got Mail. They've got a lot of nostalgia for that movie, and I just again found myself getting annoyed and and kind of rejecting it in a way that I didn't reject other collaborations between Tom Hanks and uh, what's her name? Meg Ryan. Meg Ryan, like other other collaborations between them, I felt like they had chemistry, and I just didn't feel it in You've Got Mail. And maybe it's just me rejecting romantic comedies where like they're both kind of shitty people, <laughs> and they're they're better off if they're like kind of shitty together. I mean, I think that is the inherent problem with all romantic comedies is that they're kind of terrible people. I think even even a movie that recently came out, Happiest Season, I think especially the Harper character played by Mackenzie Davis is ultimately a pretty terrible person and you want to see Kristen Stewart with Aubrey Plaza instead. So I think that is inherent an inherent problem of the genre that needs to be better addressed. Like I think crazy rich Asians almost kind of cracked the code on this because I don't think that either person was completely shitty. And I think they transferred the shittiness onto someone else, but I think that that is a problem with the genre that I certainly understand. I think High Fidelity, because of its unique qualities, I think that's one of the reasons that it uh, it still works for me. And I also love the fact that Lisa Bonet was in the series and Zoe Kravitz, her her daughter, was then Rob Gordon. Yeah, absolutely. That's fun. What, what's your feelings on the Springsteen cameo? I like the Springsteen cameo. I think it works. It, 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 I think that was the most surprising thing for me when I'm watching this movie for the first time. I was like, oh, they just straight up got... Sp- Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> they straight out just brought Bruce Springsteen into the movie, and he's just being Bruce Springsteen, and it works out so well. Yeah, just an incredibly memorable scene. I've not got far enough. Is there a, is there a like likewise version of that in the in the Hulu series or? No, they they do bring in another musician, but I'm not familiar enough with music to know how important this person is. Who who is it? I do, I don't remember who it is. Okay, Debbie Harry. Oh, I love Debbie Harry. There you go. Lisa Rob Blondie. Oh, that's a great pick. Okay. Um, right. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, and then num- your number nine pick uh, on this is Network, a movie which I literally finished watching just before we started recording. Okay, so I'm going to go to you first since this is fresh in your mind. What did you think of Network? That's uh, a fucking masterpiece. <laughs> like, I, I, I think this is the best. If I were to evaluate just screenplays, this would probably be number one. Yeah, I just had so much fun with this. I kind of like went into it going like, right, I'm not sure whether or not this is going to stack up, but just it's, it's so funny. It's so like, it's so timeless in the ways that it's kind of like poking fun at things. And, and maybe in this day and age, the, the the show that they're making wouldn't be about like far left protest groups. It'd be about someone on the far right instead. But that's about the only thing that I could think that like felt like kind of, a little bit lost in time, but just like the performances are so good, obviously infamous for winning an Oscar for like a performance that's less than five minutes long, but just, I mean, Peter Finch is superb and Faye Dunaway is fantastic. Even if I think she gets less to do in the, it left less to do in the back half of the movie, but like the scene where they're just sat there and she just flippantly brings up the idea of assassinating him on television. And everyone's just like, yeah, that's, (laughs) that's the thing we're going to do. And you got the legendary Robert Duvall in this movie, and I think just the role that he plays, so different from The Godfather and even Apocalypse Now. I mean, just 
what he's able to do. I mean, he's dialing it up. That's the thing is that everybody's kind of dialing it up, and I think it really works. And I mean, this is probably this might be one of William Holden's best performances as well. I think it, he is kind of the emotional centerpiece, even though. I think uh, Peter Finch is kind of regarded as the lead as Howard Beale and won a posthumous Oscar for it. I think William Holden is kind of the person that is the the emotional center of the movie. And there is there is some honestly poignant dialogue that even though it was written in 1974, it still feels as relevant in 2020. And that might be the most impressive thing. Like the idea of there being only four channels is pretty absurd now. But I don't think... Like, I still think that a lot of this, the, the elements of this movie are, are still prescient. Like, there's even, like, there's a lot of discussion about, like, certain leftist groups that are selling out even now to the Democratic Party. Like, this is stuff that is still relevant in 2020. And, like, how do you actually affect change? And I think that's something that Network does uh, so well. And it's it's no wonder that this was brought to uh, Broadway and uh, Brian Cranston was brought in to play Howard Beale, which, I mean, that's almost too perfect casting, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like you can see that this is very much something that Aaron Sorkin probably like was very masturbatory over. I mean, I think Newsroom is a far worse version of it, but that's mostly because the way that Newsroom does it is the kind of looking back with twenty twenty vision on how journalists should have covered things. Like, there's no prescience in the Newsroom. There's only this kind I mean, of the- like holier than thou lording it over and like what what journalists should have done i mean the problem is that aaron sorgan does not understand satire and that's why a lot of his projects ultimately don't work is because he's too sincere and he's too much up his own ass to actually engage with this material like the thing about network that makes it so good it is the sharpest satire that you will probably ever see in an American film. You will not see this level of satire. I mean, I think this, and even the South Park movie to an extent, this is the best examples of satire that you will see in American movies because I think it's satire is very, very hard to pull off, especially when you're talking about the issues that this movie is talking about. But I think it absolutely nails it. I think it's also funny that, like, the entire idea of the perversion of journalism and, like, television, televised news is done by the fourth network of UBS. And then, obviously, what, 14 years after this movie comes out, Fox comes around and <laughs> starts and Fox, it. And Fox also does the job of ruining journalism. Yeah. So it's pretty, it's pretty amazing... Uh, to think about that and understand it. And yeah, the performances are spectacular. I mean, Ned Beatty basically has two scenes and almost steals the movie uh, out from everybody else. I mean, that's the thing about this movie is that the script is so good that every single character gets a moment. So that's, that's how, that's how somebody can win an Oscar for being in the movie for five minutes, which I'm not sure if I agree with it, but I think it speaks to just how good Patty Chayefsky did. Oh yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's funny. This has been a movie that I've wanted to watch for years. I remember the first time I became aware of it was on Charlie Brooker's Screenwipe series, where he was talking about the news of of the actual like late 2010s and or not late 2010s, the the late 2000s. And he plays a clip of it. And I'm like just so transfixed by Peter Finch's performance, and I'm g- genuinely annoyed at myself that it's taken me like a decade to get around to this. I will say this. I, I definitely knew that Network was going to be on the list somewhere, but after rewatching it, 
I was like, this is definitely going in the top ten. Like, I knew after the latest rewatch, which I have not watched this movie in a few years, like, it became a definite, like, this is going in the top ten at some point. Because it's just, it's too good. And I think this and all the President's Men, like, are right there together talking about different facets of journalism. All the President's Men is much more serious but I think that what Network is able to do, I think Network is able to handle a lot of broader ideas even better than I think all the President's Men, which I think can sometimes get a little bit bogged down. But Network just feels both broad in its assessment of kind of the way the TV journalism is done, but very like what it's trying to say about consumerism and capitalism and news for profit and things like that that unfortunately are still issues today. Yeah, absolutely. Uh Possibly your hottest take at number eight. Why have you got Lion King 2019 at number eight on your list? I do not have Lion King 2019. That There has never been a more depressing movie theater experience for me than I think seeing Lion King 2019, especially because Lion King 1994 is, is my favorite Disney movie ever, period. I mean, I don't consider the, the trilogy that's next to be... That, I mean, that's, that's not Disney. Um... For me, The Lion King is is definitively my favorite Disney movie of all time, and I think just the animation is beautiful. Obviously, they are they're kind of retelling uh, the the story of Hamlet in some ways, but like I just think this movie works. It's also got great music, just similar uh, to Aladdin, and yeah, the the animals are able to emote, which is very helpful when you're trying to get into a story, unlike the 2019 version. So, yeah, The Lion King 1994 is, uh, is pretty spectacular. And uh, that's, really, that's really all that can be said about it. I mean, it's, not, it's definitely not as deep as Network or All the President's Men, but I think it's, it's, it's just extremely entertaining and still works after 25 years. And there was never a reason to remake this movie ever. No, absolutely not. I mean, this is a, an indelible part of my childhood in terms of Disney movies. This is the one that I've probably seen the most in my life. The songs are great. The movie's great. Just, I mean, it's gorgeous. Uh, not a bad thing to say about it. I'm annoyed at myself that, like, the next time I watch it is probably going to be, like, as part of a, a Disney marathon starting from the 1930s all the way through. Yeah, I, I, I mean, the good news is at least a lot of those movies are very short, so you'll be able to breeze through them. At some point, I need to watch The Black Cauldron, because after watching the documentary about the Disney Renaissance, I'm so curious about this movie. So that's something that I'm going to do at some point. Yeah, I mean, I've not seen Black Cauldron either, so I'm very intrigued on that. I almost bought the big Disney Blu-ray box set they put out a couple of years ago uh, until I looked into the background of it, and it was like, there are three movies in here that are just on DVDs, and they just like, this is the perfect opportunity to remaster this on Blu-ray, but... Alas. Alas. Right, tied at number five, you've got the Star Wars original trilogy. Do you have a hot Star Wars take that you want to impart upon us now? I really wish I did. I really wish, like... I will say 12 to 13 year old me really liked, would probably say Return of the Jedi was his favorite. But since then, I've certainly gone away from that. I mean, is saying I like A New Hope more than Empire Strikes Back a hot take? I don't think so. I think there's so much a like 1A, 1B choice for this kind of thing. I mean, I think they are definitively the two best movies. And I don't know. I, like, what do you even say about Star Wars at this point? There's always a part of me that wonders, like, what if this was it? Like, what if there were no books, no prequel trilogy, no sequel trilogy, no animated series? Like, what would our perception of this trilogy be 
without those things? And that's that's an impossible question to answer because we have all of these, the role-playing game, the books, everything. But, like, I, I wonder, like, how this trilogy would be perceived. Would it be perceived more positively if George Lucas had not changed the things that he's changed? And, you know, would Star Wars be alive still? Like, those are the things that I really consider because I could tell you that, for me... I definitely saw these movies on VHS first, but I think what made me into a big Star Wars fan was getting to see them in theaters when they came out in 1997. Like, it was a big deal to go opening weekend and see A New Hope, even if it was a re-release and even though I had seen it before. Like, seeing these movies in theaters definitely um, had an impact on me that is indelible and is why I will still continue to see Star Wars in theaters for better and for worse. Yeah, Star Wars good. I mean, I think the hottest take I can muster is that, like, I think possibly of the original trilogy, my favorite sustained, like, 40 minute sequence in any of them is the start of Return of the Jedi. I mean, I think that's, I think I would almost agree with you. I think that might be some of the best that Star Wars has ever been because it just, I think The Mandalorian has captured a lot of those first 40 minutes of Return of the Jedi because it's not a monumental space battle. It's just, it's a heist situation. It's just this very small side adventure. And in, in a lot of ways, I think that's where Star Wars is actually when it's the best is when it's not like connected to these planet changing odds and whatnot. And it's just kind of telling these small stories. And that's something that I hope we get to see more of, because I think it's something that Clone Wars and Rebels has also done very well. No, absolutely. And someday I'll watch The Mandalorian and be able to have, like, strong opinions about it. I mean, Timothy Oliphant is in The Mandalorian. You have no excuse. I don't. I should I should watch it just for sexy Timothy Oliphant. Speaking of sexy, <laughs> Casablanca. You're, be, you're becoming a better and better podcast host with, with segues like that. Uh, I, I try sometimes. I've, I've struggled really hard with a, a segue from Lion King into Star Wars, but like, this one worked. I think, I mean, Casablanca is one of those movies that I think anyone who accuses classic movies of being stunning, of being stuffy and unapproachable, I mean, I think Casablanca is the most accessible classic movie uh, that has ever been made. It's, I know I talked about my love for Jimmy Stewart, but this is probably my favorite performance of any of the kind of older actors like Cary Grant, Jimmy Stewart, Humphrey Bogart. I mean, he is so good in this role and the, the romance that's at the center of it like, this is a romantic movie where the, the main couple doesn't even get together. It's got iconic lines that have crossed over into popular culture. This this movie has been parodied, honored so many times. If Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez had followed through with their threat to remake this, I think I would have been one, one of the people riding on the streets. Uh, I think this movie is just, it's just about perfect. And... I know we talk about the idea of the MacGuffin in relation to uh, movies that come out kind of kind of come out after this, but the Letters of Transit are the ultimate MacGuffins of all of them in any movie that's been made. Even more so than Maltese Falcon. Even more so than the Maltese Falcon, because the Letters of Transit are ultimately very forgettable. <laughs> like the Maltese Falcon, at least you have this visual of the Falcon and it becomes an important plot point at the end because they realize that it's a fake. But Casablanca, I mean, like, you don't even really see the letters of transit. Fair enough. I mean, I mean, I mean, there isn't really much to say about it. I mean, like, isn't, 
What is the line that's actually said in the movie? Because it's not play it again, Sam, is it? It's just play it, Sam. Play it, Sam. Like, it, again, one of those like uh, like things where like everyone remembers lines wrong from it, but it's something that everyone knows. This like cultural touchstone for everything, and yeah, just. I mean, I think that one of the best lines in this is uh, is Claude Rains coming in and saying that he's shocked about gambling and then being handed his winnings. I mean, it's just it's genuinely one of the funniest movies that's ever been made. Too, it's 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 got a little bit of everything, and that's why it's uh, it's number four. Speaking of the funniest movies ever, number three, The Dark Knight. You must be talking about The Dark Knight's Nicky Cat in a, in an iconic performance as uh, the driver of the Joker about halfway through the movie, and he actually gets to utter the line, we're like turkeys on Thanksgiving down here. I unironically love that performance. Is there anything more to say about The Dark Knight? There really, really isn't, but... Anyone who says that this movie is dark, dark and gritty, I will point to Nikki Cat and say, "You tell me that's dark and gritty, and you're, I will tell you that I think you're crazy," because I think this movie does have a sense of humor that isn't really there on the surface, but it's definitely there, and it's a great Chicago movie. It's a great action movie. It's, um, yeah. I mean, this is this is, I think, one of the. I don't know what movie theaters' futures are going to be. This might ultimately be one of the last, like, big movie events that we have. Like, I feel like this, Avengers Endgame, those are, like, two of the last real, like, these aren't just movies, but these are, this crosses over into being something else. And I think, like, even, I don't, I don't even know if the Star Wars sequel trilogy kind of crossed over as much as The Dark Knight did. I mean, people... We're ready for this movie to come out to the point where this is the first time I recall not only there being midnight screenings, but there being 3 a.m., 6 a.m., like every three hours, this is going to be played in a cinema. So that was a really big deal. And I mean, I still I still think it holds up. I know that there's, you know, there have been critiques as there always are, but like it doesn't get any better than Heath Ledger's Joker and Christian Bale's Batman and just everything about this. And I mean, a movie where like Commissioner Gordon gets to do something and like I remember when like he pops out and it's revealed that he's alive like I remember there being an applause at a time when you know just just like Avengers Endgame like there was huge applause when he said that the Joker was under arrest yeah I mean this I remember vividly seeing this in cinema I remember seeing the, the disappearing pencil scene and just like everyone in the cinema flinching at it like this is a movie that broke the Oscars in so many different ways just because it didn't get a nomination for Best Picture and everyone was like what the fuck are we doing if we're not going to nominate this kind of thing it does genuinely feel like a word of mouth hit in a way that not even like the Marvel movies are at this point really where people liked Batman Begins but there was so much kind of mystique around what Heath Ledger was going to do that is obviously only like capped off by his tragic passing, but just it's insane just how this movie's legacy grew from basically a movie that some people very much liked in 2005, but also wasn't a huge hit. And I think that other movies have tried to capture this. Like they talk about the idea of this is our version of the dark Knight, And 
you're never going to be able to do that because there is only one Dark Knight and Christopher Nolan is pretty much at the peak of his powers as a director. And I think this movie just works. Were you also wondering why Gotham just looks like Chicago too? Not really, because I don't think I was paying enough attention to it. I, I obviously now afterwards I know that like they shot in three different cities for three different Gothams, and like it, it creates this illusion of Gotham as this like every city, every American city kind of thing, where like the first Batman movie in Nolan's trilogy feels I, I, I can't remember where they shoot, but it definitely feels the most like the comic book Gotham, and then obviously you get Chicago, and then. Where is it they filmed for for Dark Knight Rises? Which obviously like it's it's Pittsburgh, and I don't know Pittsburgh well enough to say how definitively it felt like Pittsburgh, but the Dark Knight really does feel like it's just Chicago. Uh, but and obviously like the fact that like even Nolan can top this, like Dark Knight Rises is a movie that I like, but obviously has had a kind of I don't want to say a critical reevaluation, but definitely people aren't as into it as they were when it came out. But like he couldn't top it. And the fact that the third movie doesn't really pull any of the strings from the second movie, it's kind of the perfect standalone Batman movie of, of any Batman movie that's been made to this point. Yeah, and unlike unlike J.J. Abrams' The Rise of Skywalker, I'm willing to give it more of a pass because with Heath Ledger's passing, I very much understand like just not even touching the Joker. Like I'm very sympathetic to that. I think... I think Christopher Nolan was just put in a really tough spot with The Dark Knight Rises, and that doesn't excuse some of what happened, but I am at least a little bit more willing to forgive, and I I still really like The Dark Knight Rises a lot. So at number two, you've got The Godfather, and I I have to ask, why would you say say something so controversial yet so brave? Um, I don't know, man. Like, I mean... I would I would love to make the argument that the Godfather is bad almost because that's just how I think but the idea that this movie is bad is just like if somebody were to tell if if Ben if you if you told me you watched the Godfather and you thought it was bad I don't know if we could continue talking about movies because I mean this just this movie is probably the best American movie that has ever been made and I know that there, there are people who argue Gone with the Wind, Casablanca, Citizen Kane, even Vertigo to an extent, but like, I just think that The Godfather is the best. I think it's got the best direction from Francis Ford Coppola at a time when, I mean, this was his run. Like, he had a run of The Godfather, The Conversation, The Godfather Part Two, and Apocalypse Now. And to do that back to back to back to back, that's just not something you're ever going to see again because even though even though Godfather Part 2 is a sequel to this movie, Godfather Part 2 is so much different uh, than the first one. And I think what makes the first one so special is the performances and the world building that it does. It's three hours, but I think this also is a very approachable movie. It's not stuffy in a way I think a lot of people associate older movies with being it looks totally different than any movie that's again been made before or since because just the color tones that are being used you've got like Marlon Brando in one of his last great movies even though he was still doing movies 30 years later but you've also like you've got Al Pacino in one of his early roles and a, a lot of things about this movie could have gone wrong but it just didn't and this is a movie that I, I think I saw when I was like 14 or 15 years old, and it's always stuck with me as just being one of those movies. 
and I don't know if this is true for, for the UK, Ben, but whenever there's a holiday, I will be able to find a channel with The Godfather, and it's just airing for like 24 hours straight. Like this and Godfather 2 just air all the time on cable here. And I think it speaks to just how, how people love this movie. They love the elements of this movie, and I think you see the influence of The Godfather in every mob movie since. I think you see it in even shows like The Sopranos, and I think you even see the influences of The Godfather and things like Game of Thrones with just the, the palace intrigue and how it's done. So, I mean, it, I would have a hard time not putting this as high on the list as I did. That's fair enough. So, is, obviously, you've put a lot of trilogies and series very close together, like your Star Wars, your Toy Stories, your Lord of the Rings. And obviously, the Godfather trilogy isn't as universally regarded as, as some of those. But was there anything holding you back from putting in part two at, like, number number two as well? Um, I think what holds me back is I'm not into the De Niro stuff, the, 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 the kind of the prequel aspects of it as much. I really like the Pacino stuff. I think Pacino should have won an Oscar for Godfather 2. I think that might be his best performance ever. I still like the De Niro stuff, but I'm not as into it consistently. And I think I think some of the back and forth does hurt the momentum of that movie. But like, if I were to make a list of like the next 100 favorite movies on my list, The Godfather Part Two would probably be near the top of that list as well because I still think it's really, really good. Fair enough. And then I guess just top it off. What are your opinions on Godfather Part 3, and are you going to be watching the, the Coda version that's going to be released? I am going to watch the Coda version just out of idle curiosity, and I think that movie deserves a rewatch. I want to see a version of The Godfather Part 3 where Winona Ryder is in it, and where Robert Duvall is, the, is Tom Hagen again. I think if you make those two changes, I think The Godfather 3 is a completely different movie, because I think the chemistry with Andy Garcia is just ruined by having Sofia Coppola. Um, I understand that Francis Ford Coppola has certainly put family members in movies before and had family members doing, like, the score. Talia Shair is a family member. Nicolas Cage is a family member. I get that. Sofia Coppola cannot act. And it, I think it ruins The Godfather 3, and even though I don't think it's as necessarily as bad as some have made it out to be, I think the problem is that Sofia Coppola is so bad and she sticks out so much, not just because of the movie that she is in, but because of the legacy of the first two Godfathers that I think it really ruins it. And I am, I'm really happy that she has been able to forge a career as a director because I think it atones for the fact that her father basically kind of screwed kind of screwed her by putting her in this role i don't blame her for being bad i blame francis for putting her in this terrible position yeah like like especially if he had access to someone like winona Ryder. well i mean obviously she dropped out for different reasons but like if if that had not happened and all the rest of it like what does that look like really um but let's get to the top movie on this list number one Pulp Fiction, uh, again, another movie, I, 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 as much as I love 
a lot of the movies on this, it, they are an awful lot of kind of like what is there left to say that hasn't been said repeatedly uh, about some of these movies. You so, know what really shocked me about watching Pulp Fiction again? Just how many N-words are used. Like, I was surprised. Like, I thought this was a recent thing. And obviously, you know, I, I am much more aware of that word and its significance. That <laughs> gets used a lot in Pulp Fiction. And um, Pulp, Pulp Fiction has always been what I would consider to be one of my favorite movies. And it's for all the reasons that have been stated a million times before. I just, I can't believe that somebody could come make a first movie as good as Reservoir Dogs, which is very good, and then somehow make one of the best films that's ever been made that's been ripped off a million times in the ensuing 30 years. Again, The Simpsons kind of did a parody of it, and I think that's a real sign that this movie just really crossed over into being something that was just one thing, and then it became another. Also on the rewatch, I desperately, I want... I. I would love to see just if there's a possibility, even if it's in a novel form, I kind of want to see what Samuel Jackson's character is doing 30 years later after this. Like, <laughs> I'm really curious. I mean, the thing that, I mean, obviously, like, you can say that this is one of the best scripts of all time quite easily. I mean, obviously, like, the, the structure of it is so ingenious and the fact that it manages to juggle all these different characters... Uh, across this movie again another movie with an incredibly famous MacGuffin at the center of it that I'm sure everyone involved still gets asked questions managing to make John Travolta into a star again for about 10 years like I also want to like shout out Sally Menke's or Sally Menke's uh, editing like she obviously gets nominated for this in Gross Bastards but she really should have won for for both of the movies really in terms of just just how tightly edited that both of them are I agree. I think the fact that she didn't win an editing, especially for Pulp Fiction, which is told out of order, but it still feels like it's told in the right order. I mean, it's it's just unbelievable just how good this movie is 30 years later. Something else I noticed on the rewatch, and I don't know what you're going to think about this, but uh, there is a point when Samuel Jackson talks about um, Marcellus, Wallace, Marcellus Wallace being fucked like a bitch. And then he is, in fact, sodomized later on in the movie. And I don't know, maybe I'm a bad movie watcher, but that just clicked for me upon the most recent rewatch. Uh, I mean, I've not seen it in, in so long that, like, all those little elements are probably going to, like, come washing back over me, like, if I ever decided to do a rewatch of it. Um, probably not anytime soon. I, I'm always, again, I'm kind of a contrarian, and I do hold up that I think Jackie Brown might be my favorite 90s Tarantino film. Which is bizarre. I mean, I like it well enough because Robert fucking Forrester is in it. And he is... I will say this. If I were to make a list of my 10 favorite Tarantino performances, I think Robert Forrester would probably make it either one or two, maybe three, because he's just so different from every other acting performance that has ever been done in a Tarantino movie because it's so much quieter than every other performance in a Tarantino movie. Yeah, no, I love his performance in that movie. So I'm going to gonna close off with two questions here, which is one, if Tarantino does only do one more movie, what kind of genre do you want him to do? Do you want him to go back to this early days kind of like genre stuff with Reservoir Dogs, Reservoir Dogs Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, or do you want him to do more of like what he's done 
in the 2000s and 2010s where it's kind of big riffs on b-movies and and that kind of thing like his western his his war movie his his action film and all the rest of it I mean, I think if if he is going to make a 10th movie and it is going to be definitively his 10th and last movie, I hope that he does something that in some way honors his entire filmography and that that's probably going to be really difficult to do. But I don't know if I would say like a biopic would be appropriate, but I would like to see something that in some way honors everything that he has done up to this point and somehow be able to include a lot of the actors that have been in his movies and maybe even have somebody in the lead that has never been in a Tarantino film before. Like, I think that would be really interesting and just have like bit parts for a bunch of people. And again, just kind of find a way to honor all of the things that he has been able uh, to accomplish over the years and like have Leonardo DiCaprio come in for like a two minute cameo or something like that. Like, not Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. I don't want to suggest something like that, but just something to where, because he's had so many different facets, and I know the people accuse him of making the same movie over and over again, but I just want to see him make a movie that that somehow is able to encompass everything that he's done, and I don't even know how that's possible. I mean, if he also does just make a tenth movie that is just Star Trek, then that would be kind of an all-time boss move. I mean, yeah, like, Star Trek was obviously the big rumour that he was going to do that, and that seems to have completely gone away at this point. I mean, maybe he can, like, sneak in an 11th movie and have it be Kill Bill Volume 3. Um, but I guess that would make it 12, because we everyone does kind of internally count the Kill Bills as one movie. But I know there is a concept for Kill Bill Volume 3 that's been floating around for a while. Um, and I've heard, uh, I've, I've heard, like, what if Zendaya is put in that role? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many different things that he could do. It's it's his whole career is wide open. And I mean, I was listening to a podcast the other day that that posited like there are not many um, director actor pairings anymore that kind of elicit the same kind of response that something like Leonardo DiCaprio announcing he's going to work with Tarantino got. Like there are so few huge stars and huge name directors that haven't worked together that just the idea of them working together without any idea of what the movie's going to be is exciting. I'll say this. If Quentin Tarantino can get Tom Cruise to appear in a movie, and I think that's like the last great collaboration. Exactly. like That is the one. And obviously Tom Cruise is at a point now where he's done with his 90s phase of working with interesting auteur directors and he's got his cabal of like four or five people that he works with repeatedly. But if he was to work with someone who he hasn't worked with, who is a canonical great director of all time, Tom Cruise being the star of the final Tarantino movie is kind of a very intriguing prospect. And what if that's the one that could get him his Oscar too? Yes. Or like, what if Tom Cruise is done, like he does a supporting actor performance and that's what gets, gets him his Oscar. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And then just to finish off, just a question of like, Obviously, this is a huge celebration of cinema, like not only of your own personal taste in movies, things that have defined your adolescence and your adulthood and just all time great movies in itself. But like, do you see the future of cinema being bright? Obviously, like we are recording this on the day that the the news has broken that HBO Max is going to be airing all of Warner Brothers slate for 2021. But like. There's a lot of movies in the last couple of years here. Do you see that kind of creative force carrying on 
next for years or is there like a consolidation and death of interesting projects that's going to start happening now i mean i don't know what to think about the future of cinema i think it's very unsure to me but the thing that gives me hope is like even in the year 2020 when everything has been canceled i can still come up with a list of 10 movies that i think are really really good and i know a lot of the oscar contenders are going to kind of be coming out in 2021 but like the five bloods palm springs like these are as creatively rich as anything as i've seen and when i look at the month of december on netflix being able to see mank and ma rainey's bottom and midnight sky like i'm really excited to see those movies and as as i was messaging ben last night like i watched uh one of steve mcqueen's new films the small act series i mean i think that those that like that is as creative as something can get because Steve McQueen is getting a chance to play in different genres that he's never been able to play with before. And he's able to kind of get away from writing about American situations and kind of talk about things that are more personal to him. So I think it's still, it's still very exciting that he's been, that, that we are still able to see quality movies, even though it's on streaming and the big, the big theater experience, unfortunately, um, has kind of gone away this year. But I think that as long as there are directors who want to be creative, I think there are going to be outlets that are going to give them the opportunity to do so because there are so many streaming services now that want creativity. And I don't think it's just HBO Max, Hulu, Amazon, Netflix. You've also got a lot of co-productions that are happening with the BBC and Sky in the UK. And not to mention, you know, internationally, we talk about Bong Joon-ho in South Korea. And you know that when South Korea starts to release their movies, I mean, how much of a factor are they going to be? As I have no doubt that Bong Joon-ho has elevated that entire country almost by himself. And Netflix is very interested in international movies. So, like, what kind of movies are just going to be put on that service that are legitimately great movies and not just American movies? And I think increasingly the other thing that we're seeing is people, Gen Z, millennials, are more and more comfortable with subtitles. And that means that you can see a lot more. I, I, think, the in, I think the theatrical experience is very uncertain right now. But I think as far as being able to see movies, I don't think that that's going to end anytime soon. And I think that we are going to continue to get creative, great movies. We might have to look for them on our various streaming services, but I think they're going to be there. Yeah, no, very much my my thoughts as well on the whole matter. So we've been going for like five hours across two episodes at this point. Do you have anything you want to plug in the run-up to, to closing this out? Um, so I am grateful to be done with this list, quite honestly. Make sure you actually go and read the individual write-ups. I think we kind of hit on some things that I wanted to hit on, but I definitely go into more expansive detail, as you might imagine. Write-ups of all of these movies. And one of the reasons that I wanted to release the list as I did, I did not release kind of numbers, is I really wanted to honor all of the 100 movies equally without attaching a number to them. So, I mean, look, Pulp Fiction is number one. And there is a clear difference between Pulp Fiction being number one and Philadelphia being in the 80s. But... Like, these are still movies that matter a great deal to me. So make sure you go and read the write-ups, enterthereallworld.com. 
Uh, you can also listen to Brian and I. We are doing a Pantheon Plus uh, superhero Pantheon. We are going to be doing a Watchmen episode next week. So that's going to be very exciting. No, I'm sorry. In two weeks, Brian and I will be talking about Watchmen, and we will be talking about Wonder Woman. Ben, the cinema's back. HBO Max is bringing the movies to us. What a time to be alive. And uh, Kevin Ford and I are finishing up our look at Better Call Saul next week with uh, Real Bad, Episode 12. The show is not done, but we are done because we do not have any more seasons to review. But we will review Season 6 whenever it comes out, hopefully in 2021, when production will, I guess production is commencing in March. Hopefully next fall we will be able to discuss the greatness that is the sixth and final season of Better Call Saul and perhaps the 11th and final season of the better the bad the breaking bad universe the breaking soul the breaking soul universe yes yeah uh ben why don't you plug your stuff i mean oh god i've done so much talking yeah i mean on real world obviously we're going to be having star wars week going up uh either it's either going to be this week or it's the week after this episode gets posted um so yeah, Star Wars week where we're going to rank all the movies in the Star Wars franchise. Matt and I are going to be doing a commentary on the holiday special. I believe You're welcome. There is... <sighs> yeah, I've, I've got my friend coming on for that who is a Star Wars master and will be teaching us the lore and we'll be drinking and probably not talking about the movie all that much, to be honest. But it will be on in the background <laughs> whilst we have this conversation. I, uh, you are required to talk about Bay Arthur. Sir. Okay, we will talk about Bay Arthur. Bay Arthur is an American icon, and I will not have you besmirch her name on your commentary. I'm honestly more certain we'll be discussing Jefferson Starship more than Bay Arthur. And when I t- when I say this, when I talk about Bay Arthur, I am not I'm not being insincere. She is legitimately regarded as kind of an iconic figure in this country because of the uh, because of Golden Girls. Yeah, I, mean, I, I know of her reputation from Golden Girls, but like, obviously that's years after this, isn't it? Yes, it is. But she was also on a very popular CBS sitcom, Maud, which is completely different from Star Wars: The Holiday Special in every conceivable way. Excellent. Uh, and then I think Matt and uh, Matt and Mike are going to be having their solo episode going up during the week as well. It's all going to be just so much Star Wars content going up in one set week and then matt and i will also be wrapping up volume two of there will be movies we're in the middle of 2019 at the moment well we'll be discussing such movies as book smart and knives out uh and then you can probably figure out the last two movies are going to be considering we didn't cover ladybird and uh we didn't cover snowpiercer yeah absolutely and i just want to say that there are a lot of movies that from recent years that i definitely could have put on this list possibly even in like the next 100 little women is right at the top of the list and that is a movie i will say ben that i i saw it and it was like oh this was pretty good and ever since then it just it gets better and better in my head so i need to rewatch it at some point uh, yeah i've seen it three times now just an absolutely charming movie and i've i just started to get into the arguments of is little women a christmas movie and will it enter like christmas rotation in terms of <laughs> That I think it, why not? I mean, if if we can put Die Hard as a Christmas movie, then why not have Little Women as a Christmas movie? There's multiple scenes set at Christmas. I mean, I'm in favor of it. It's even got Christmas Bob Odenkirk, which is like the best kind of Bob Odenkirk. 
by the way, all I can say is I remember being in theaters, and uh, when Bob Odenkirk has appeared as the husband, there was laughter. <laughs> uh, don't, right. know how, don't know if that was the smartest casting. <laughs> I, I like Bob Odenkirk in that movie. I like Bob Odenkirk, too, too, but, like... Maybe in that role, not 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 appropriate. No, possibly not. But yeah, we've been going for for so very long right now. So uh, goodbye, everyone. Jerome, do you want to do a sign off properly? Uh, ben, uh, will there be movies? God, I hope for this. What? <laughs> There's so many. <laughs> That's the perfect way to end it. <laughs> There's so many. There's so many. <laughs>